They're breaking in! From M. Night Shyamalan, the visionary director who brought you Split. Your family must sacrifice one of the three of you to prevent the apocalypse. We're not sacrificing anyone. For the last three times, for every no you give us, billions will perish. This is delusional! Save your family. I'm on my family's side. Or save humanity. No! Make a choice. Knock at the cabin in cinemas February 3rd, Certificate 15. Hello. Today we have got John Lawson. I've almost finished reading his book, If a Wicked Man. And if you click down in the description box below this video, it is available worldwide on Amazon. And also, whichever comment gets the most likes will get a free copy. I'll check that out a couple of weeks after it's been posted. So, if you want to read it, I've almost finished, and it's absolutely mind-blowing. Not just about John's upbringing in South Africa and coming and throwing back to the UK. This is a story that involves various mafia. John was working in Soho, London for the Maltese Mafia. He had run-ins with the Jamaican Yardies. He had run-ins with the Albanian Mafia. But perhaps one of the most gripping stories is the work he put in as an enforcer for the German. So, thanks for coming on, John, before you head off to South Africa. You're welcome. How on earth did you fall in with the Maltese Mafia? Um, well, through my uncles, really, uh, Sean. I had um, two of my uncles, George and Dave, were... Pretty notorious in Glasgow at the time. In fact, my uncle George was told by um, Arthur Thompson, who was one of the most well-known um, gangsters, that he's a liability and he should get himself into London out the way. Was that? Um, is he so, known as the Godfather, Arthur Thompson? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was. I think, but um, Johnny Boy Steele, I don't know. He spoke about him. Um, my uncle was just a bit crazy, really, and he was. He would definitely have been a liability. Um, my other uncle Dave had escaped from prison and had um, legged it down to London. So he started a new life down in London. How did he escape from prison? Uh, in a really simple way. Um, uh, when you go into prison, you know, you've got the main gates kind of like open and the van goes in and then there's another gate and then that gate closes and only when that gate's closed, that one opens. But way back then, so you're looking um, late 60s, early 70s, they drove the prison van in with my Uncle Dave in it into the interior bit. And um, they opened the van door before the gate had closed. And so he, he jumped out with the handcuffs on and he legged it out, squeezed through the gate as it shut. <laughs> Stole a car and, <laughs> and was gone, you know. Was that Bellini? So, it was Bellini, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was Bellini. Jo that's what Johnny Boy Steele escaped from there a few times. <laughs> oh, did he really? Yeah, yeah. He, oh, he, he managed to get his brother out of there and he managed to put him back in. Wow, that's crazy. That's mad. But he escaped to London, um, and then the police caught up with him. I'm a bit unsure of the circumstances, but eventually the police caught up with him, um, and he got put back into prison for escaping in in London. While he was in prison, uh, he shared a cell with um, a Maltese guy who was um, the nephew of a very well-known um, Maltese mafia guy. I can't even remember his name, but he was the one that started, like, the sex industry in Soho. Perhaps just as um, well we don't remember the name. <laughs> yeah. I also don't like to give too many names away anyway, but yeah. uh, you, your watchers can Google. If they Google Maltese Mafia, Soho, 
they're going to see. He was he's he was called Big something, Big George, or I, know, I can't remember his name. But this nephew was the guy that then took over, um, and he was raised with money. Uh, this guy, uh, he was a bit soft. Like you wouldn't have thought he was a mafia guy when you met him. Um, he was he went to private school and all that kind of stuff. So he had loads of money, a bit, bit of a tough, but also ruthless as well because he had the power to click his fingers and and have something done. Um, but he wasn't capable himself of a lot of violence. He just had the heavies at hand. Anyway, this guy ended up, uh, it, we all called him Uncle Tony. So Uncle Tony was then put into prison. I think it was Wandsworth Prison. And uh, he was put into a cell with my Uncle Dave, uh, who'd escaped from Barlini. Um, uncle Tony, because he had a lot of money, was a bit of a target for other prisoners then in them days that wanted to take advantage. So a couple of guys came in to to bully him and my uncle Dave stood up slashed one of the guys and protected uncle Tony so uncle Tony said to him when he gets out of jail he'll give him a job you know he'll find a job for him um, and so Dave spent the rest of his time looking after Tony in prison when he got out uh, he went to see uncle Tony in Soho and he said I don't want to work for you I want to be your partner and a partnership was formed and uh so my Uncle Dave got into the sex industry, running all the peep shows and um, hostess bars, which were just nothing but clip joints in those days. What does the clip joint, what does that mean? So when you see those old images of Soho, it's, very, it's changed today, but um, the, you used to see a lot of these signs that said live show, live show. And way back in the 60s, pretty much punters could go in there and they could see either a full-on live sex show or, you know, very strongly simulated one. Um, the council then were trying to close all of these things down, calling them immoral or illegal. Um, and so the only way that the clubs could stay open was to remove the word sex from the live sex show part and call it a live show. So with a live show, you're not promising a customer anything, are you? Apart right. from a live show. Yeah. But of course, it's Soho. You're up there with all your mates, you know, you're on a bit of a stag do. You see live show in neon, girls, girls, girls. And generally, a customer would pay um, two quid on the door, so a cheap price to entice them in. Um, on the ticket, it would say you, you have to buy a drink when you're in the club. Uh, you would then go down into a basement, which was very uh, darkly, you know, there wasn't a lot of lights in there, a lot of tables. You'd have girls in um, suspenders and stockings, scantily clad, and a bar. Um, and the, the guys would be a bit disorientated. They're coming into this dark environment, Soho. It's a bit dodgy. They're expecting to see a live show. So a lot of these guys are pervs or married men that don't want to get caught. Um, it's a license to print money, really, because they must now buy a drink. They often don't look at the ticket that says you must buy a drink. Um, and then there'd be a table in front of them, like a little coffee table with a menu on it. And you charge very extortionate prices for drinks. Um, but of course, they wouldn't look at the menu because they're too busy looking at the girls. Um, the girl would come over with a with a tray, a waitress, and she would say, um, would you like to buy a drink? And he would usually say, no, no I just want to see the show. There'd be a double bed in the middle of the floor. Um, again, giving the illusion that there's going to be some kind of uh, sex show. Um the guy wouldn't want to buy a drink, but he'd be told, you have to buy a drink. Please check the back of your ticket. So he'd check it, and of course he'd be like, okay, uh, I'll have half a lager. Um, they 
only sold non-alcoholic drinks because we didn't have an alcohol license. Um, and there was something on the menu that said, once you've paid for one drink, all further drinks are free. So that was used as, an, and again, an incentive if guys objected. So, well, look, look here, you know, it says there, if you buy a drink, uh, you can stay as long as you want and all your drinks are free after that. That would put them at ease, okay? So they'd order uh, half a pint of lager, which um, cost 12 quid. Um, bear in mind, you're looking in the early 80s, where a pint of lager in a pub might be about 80 pence. What, yeah. All right. Uh, maybe a pound, pound twenty. It's now it's twelve quid. Um, and then she would bring you your drink, and then of course the girl would say, "Would you like to get me a drink? You know, would you like a bit of company?" And most of the guys would say, "Yeah, sure." So she'd order the most expensive cocktail on there, which was just apple and orange juice with an umbrella in it. But that was fifty quid. <laughs> um, and of course he wouldn't know that. She's just saying, "Will you get me a drink?" And he says, "Yeah." And then she sit with him. And after five minutes, um, I would send one of the guys, or I would go over to collect the bill. And the bill might be around four or 500 quid. And all he's ordered is half a Coke, because there's the hostess fee Jeez. for her company. Uh, there's her drink. And so there's all sorts of charges. So all of a sudden, the guy's confronted with, uh, uh, you know, a lot of things. And then he's still waiting to see the show. So one of the girls at that point would get onto the bed and act a bit provocative and uh, we had another guy who was part of the Maltese Mafia. He was called Martin. He was what we called the showman. So he'd come out and jump around and say, uh, "Guys, I'm gonna, I'm gonna perform with the girl now. So we we want tips. The bigger the tips, the more I'm gonna perform. You know." And he'd come around with a jar. And after these guys have spent all their money now, you know, they're just in this position where they put more money in, um, and then they would just simulate um, some sort of sex act. It was it was the weirdest thing. She would be on the bed um, kneeling towards the end the showman would stand in front of her with his back to the audience so the guys couldn't see and they would simulate oral sex although there was nothing happening he'd just get his belly button out um, and the guys would be trying to see what's going on and um, then it'd be that's it show's over and now you've got to kick them all out and um, that's the point where the fear factor comes in because predominantly um, you don't need to be the hardest man in the world, even when the place is full of 20 guys, you might often think, surely I'd kick off. You're from Witness, you know, lads are hard up in Witness, you know. <laughs> you had a group of lads down there from Witness, they might want to kick off. Yeah. But it's amazing how how people's bottle goes when they're out of their small pond and they're in a much bigger pond and they're in Soho. There's that whole illusion of um, mafia, gangsters, Am I going to get shot or killed? They're in a dark, dungeony type place. They've got a guy that's really confronting them in a very aggressive way, which is is what you use aggression to get them to pay the bill and then chase them out. And you had no end of customers because it's in the middle of the West End. The next lot had come in, and this would happen all day. So, so it's like there's a sucker born every minute. Yeah. So, it, so it moved from something um, that. Um, guys were seeing they were seeing something to the council trying to shut it down forcing the clubs to then become clip joints so it became a clip joint the hostess bars were nothing but clip joints promising an illusion of a live sex show um, but again there was nothing in the advertising that mentioned the word sex it was just a live show and so you begin to see these live shows springing up everywhere in response to government <clears throat> bureaucracy how sad is that yeah I know uh, and then they, they, they were making a lot more money really from peep shows 
So peep shows were where guys would go into a booth. There would be um, uh, a mirror, two-way mirror, a one-way mirror on, on the wall with a light behind it. And they would put a, a pound coin into the into the mechanism that would switch the light off for 30 seconds. They'd get to see the girl on the other side of that mirror and she would be stripping off or slowly stripping. But of course you get 30 seconds and so you've got to put another pound back in. So they had maybe about 14 or 15 booths uh, there and it was like non-stop from the moment you opened in the morning till the time you closed at one o'clock in the morning. It was a constant flow of guys putting pound coins in and making a mess in the booth. So somebody else had the uh, unenviable job of mopping out the booths after every customer. Um, and Like a, a shower in a man's prison. Yeah, a little bit like that, <laughs> I guess. Um, but, just, uh, but constant. Mm. Um, it didn't smell very nice. Oh. Um, I'm, I'm, I have to admit, I had to do that job at one point oh. as well. Um, and the other job I had to do was um, on the other side of the booths um, they had buckets uh, like a window washing bucket where all the pound coins fell in so my job would be to crawl under there um, because there was a platform above you where the girl, the girls were on the bed so you crawl under there change the buckets over and those buckets would be, be poured into the coin machines and the two peep shows were, were bringing in about £40,000 a week Jesus um, that was a lot more back then it was a lot of money um, so my uncles were, were doing really well. They were millionaires. So if in the clip it. joint, if someone didn't have enough money, suddenly they've got like a two or three hundred pound bill and they've only gone in with like fifty quid. Yeah. What would you? How would you handle that? Well, they would just pay what they have at that point. Once you've worked out whether they have money or not, they could pay by check. They could pay by. There was a lot of uh, tourists, so often, not so much these days, but they they carried. Um, uh, cashier's checks or I don't know it was like a, a like a checkbook but it wasn't a check I forget what they call them a, a money thing anyway they could they could pull it out and give it to you and it was like money orders cashier's yeah, checks things yeah, like that yeah like a money order type thing what so, about if someone just said this is a rip off I'm absolutely not paying uh, well then uh, intimidation would 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 come into play at that point and uh, sometimes people just didn't have have the money you know, and so you had to be able to work that out or not, how far you could push somebody. What you didn't want is people walking out of place with with a busted nose. You didn't want to have to use violence unnecessarily. I've used violence a lot in my life, I'm ashamed to say, and I always justified it by saying it was very controlled. I was a very controlled person, so I would never exert more violence than was necessary. That's how I justified using it. Whereas some of the guys I worked with were, were uncontrollable in their violence, um, but you, you don't want to use violence in that environment. You don't want to bring police attention if you if you can help it. How do you know um, where to draw the line? Because I've seen these videos of guards murdering inmates in the jail I was housed at, and it's like the, the violence starts and they get on someone like a pack of wolves, and then even when the person is unconscious, they're still on one of them. This woman guard is saying stop beating him his face has turned blue and they don't listen and the prisoners are yelling stop beating him he's already dead and they, they, they can't stop themselves how do you how do you have that ability to stop at a certain point i don't think it's an ability i think you it's just something that's in you mm. um some guys the red mist comes down and you can't stop them i've worked with loads of guys on the doors and we'll talk about that later um who are just dangerous because 
yeah, they'll they'll stamp on people's heads, or they'll choke somebody when they're down. They want to kill them, and you have to then physically pull them off. Um, and other guys, I think probably the more dangerous ones were 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 guys who were more inclined to be like me, who were more controlled, because there's you you detach the emotion from it, and when you detract emotion from something, I think it can make you dangerous because you don't really care. Mm. You don't you don't care, and you're willing to. To push it to whatever level it takes to get done and not think about it. Whereas maybe guys where the red mist comes down can be can be more dangerous in, in the respect of if they lose it, um, they're going to get themselves into trouble or they're going to kill somebody. But I think, yeah, I think you're probably more dangerous when, when you think you've got control. So it's more strategic yeah. than animalistic. You know, the guys I worked with on the door used to think that I was a bit of a, a nutcase because they never saw me really get get very angry I didn't get angry um, I was very controlled I was measured so I would I would measure my blows I didn't profess to be the hardest man on the block or, or whatever but I would be very calculated so if I'm gonna if I'm gonna punch you if you're a threat to me I'm thinking I'm just gonna punch you in the throat and not and take you out or or I'm gonna stick poke you in the eyes so I want to in, inflict maximum damage in the shortest time instead of fighting you for ages and risk killing you so my mentality I guess I was quite cold in that way maybe it's because of my upbringing or whatever but I was very measured so I was able to to ascertain quite quickly whether somebody had the means to pay or they didn't or if they were holding out uh, and also you know I've got to tell you a, a funny aspect of that story is uh, the beer was all alcoholic right? non-alcoholic sorry non-alcoholic uh, literally zero alcohol, not not even low alcohol. We we couldn't serve low alcohol, um, and I've seen guys get totally blind drunk because they think they're drinking alcohol. <laughs> uh, some kind of psychological effect. Placebo. Effect. I've had them pay like you know two three hundred quid for a bill, and now they think right stuff it now. I'm going to stay here and I'm going to drink. I had one guy who had about fourteen pints of non-alcoholic beer. And we had to help carry him out of the place and put him into a taxi. The, the guy was totally inebriated. I mean, gone completely. And, and he'd had no alcohol whatsoever, you know. It's a funny thing, psychology, you know. And I guess it was a bit, a lot of psychology in those clubs in Soho. Um, and like I say, that you're not in your hometown anymore and you don't have backup. And you don't know what's going to happen to you. Most people paid. So there were some enforcers working with you. There was three guys you described in the book. There was Diamond and two other guys. Can you just give a general description of those oh, characters? Man. They were right out of the Godfather film or something, honestly. <laughs> I think they, they were the kind of guys that wanted to live up to the image, you know, so they wanted to look like the mafia. And any genuine kind of mafia guys that I really met didn't really look like mafia guys, you know, unless they were trying to intimidate you. But um, part of the, the, the crew... Uh, or the family of the Maltese Mafia there. You have to remember, Soho really started through the Maltese Mafia. It, they're not there anymore. They got moved out by Eastern Europeans. But um, What do you mean by that, Soho started by the Maltese Mafia? So this this guy came over from, from Malta. He's an ex-copper. <laughs> um, and he started um, sex clubs, strip clubs, hostess bars, peep shows. Um, and then, of course, he started bringing his mates over from Malta who who were a bit dodgy. Because nobody that was uh, honest wanted to get into that profession. Right. So you always start, it was the criminal aspect that came over. Um, and the the mafia in Malta wanted a piece of that pie because it was very lucrative. 
Um, and so Soho, late 60s, early 60s even, uh, into the late 60s, 70s, was, was all run uh, pretty much by the Maltese Mafia. Oh, wow. And um, they're the ones that started and carried it on. And then as we headed up into the late 80s, early 90s, and then you started getting a lot of Eastern Europeans coming over, then you had turf wars, and they tended to be a little bit more violent or, or willing to take life easier. Uh, then the Maltese Mafia had become a bit comfortable now with all the money they were making. Um, and then Soho began to change. The whole thing began to change, you know. And and through that change, there was also a lot of money to be made because uh, the adult DVD shops, well, before it became DVD, it was videotape shops. You could walk up Soho and there might be, you know, 50, 60 shops in Soho selling pornographic videos. Um, but then the council started closing them down. And so... My uncle Dave had two of those kind of shops, and they he put up a sign in the window saying, uh, "Closing down sale, all films ten quid." Now the films in those days were about thirty quid, the under the counter blue movies, you know, um, and the shop was mobbed, and so they had to go and get more stock from another shop, and it was mobbed, <laughs> and so they then um, bought another shop. They bought one that was closing down, and they put closing down sale ten quid. That was packed, and all of a sudden. Uh, they bought up all the other shops and they weren't closing down, but they put closing down sale, <laughs> 10 quid. And they began to make a lot of money um, with the closing down sale technique. Uh, and then it moved to, to DVDs as well. So they made they, they made an utter fortune. Um, I can remember my Uncle Dave going to buy a Rolls Royce Silver Spirit. And uh, Dave was like really scruffy. He had like really Afro hair. Um, for a white guy, it was quite unusual in those days. He wore a T-shirt and ripped jeans, but he was a multi-millionaire. And um, I remember going with him to the Rolls-Royce showroom and him walking in and the salesman like looking him up and down, you know, like, what do you want? And my Uncle Dave said, I want to buy that Rolls-Royce Silver Spirit. And he said, yeah, I'm sure you do, sir. <laughs> I'm sure you do. And then, like, Dave opened a briefcase full of cash and said, I'm talking about cash here. Yeah. Oh, sir, and then they wanted to bend over backwards for him. <laughs> um, so much so that um, there was a statue of of um, the the winged lady. I don't know, it's something spirit, isn't she? The, the the spirit of something that's on the on the front of Rolls Royce cars. And he said, if you give me that statue, I'll buy the car cash. So the salesman phoned head office and he said, we've got a customer here. I said, if you give him the statue, I'll buy the car. And all we had. All we heard back on the on the phone was, "Well, give him the bloody statue." <laughs> you know, so, uh, yeah, so, so Uncle Dave ended up having the uh, the uh, the wing spirit, whatever she's called, um, in his house. But they were making a fortune, and, and yeah, it was predominantly the Maltese mafia. So fingers, diamonds, um, and gosh, who was the other guy? There was diamonds, fingers. And there was another guy that played cards. I can't remember. Oh his yeah, name the guy at, at um, the that play, was it in a card. Bullets. Sorry, there was bullets. bullets. So there's bullets, diamonds, and fingers. And why did they and, get those uh, names? Well, bullets had been shot three or four times. He had bullet wounds in him, and on the on the last one, the guy was going to shoot him in the head, and the bullet didn't go off. And uh, he managed to get that bullet, and he wore it as a chain round his neck. <laughs> um, the bullet that was supposed to kill him. So he was called bullets. Fingers, well, he was really good at playing cards, but also if um, he was sent to jail, his speciality was chopping people's fingers off. So he was fingers. Uh, and diamonds was simply called diamonds because he loved diamonds. He used to wear this big diamond uh, earring. Uh, but these guys were all, they reminded me of the Fonz. 
they all had like a hairstyle like the Fonz, and they they went round like him. But they would wear the, the suit and the spats and the uh, yeah. They were, they were, when I first met them, I was like, "These guys, where did you get these guys off a off a film set?" But actually, they knew everybody, and they were very very good backup, and they had a fearful reputation. I I, I got on really well with them uh, as a newcomer. They accepted me into the family quite well. But I, I always thought they were a bit of a joke, really, you know. <laughs> but I knew they had a dangerous side. Caricatures. Yeah. So you moved down south and you clicked up with the Maltese Mafia. Things are going smoothly. What were the first problems that arose? Well, there were several problems. Um, we had, um, at that point, there was uh, some Jamaican yardies that were beginning to move into the area. Excuse me. Yeah, go for it. So Jamaican Yardies are the like Rasta gang, is it, out of Jamaica that run drugs and murder for hire and that kind of stuff? Yeah. Prostitution. Um, before they came onto the scene in Soho, um, most drug there was a lot of coke in Soho anyway because there was a lot of money. So uh, a lot of that was bought in uh, illegal drinking holes. Um, and my uncles, they, they run one of these kind of... You had to knock on the door and give the password and all that. You had to know somebody, uh, like a Shabin. And um, so that's predominantly where, where I saw people that are into Coke, buying their Coke, or in the clubs. Um, you didn't really see it openly on, on the streets in those days. Um, but um, the Yardies began to move in uh, and sell, and they'd hang around the streets. So often um, they would hang about outside the hostess bars, the peep shows, uh, my uncles also had flats that they rented out to madams where they had prostitutes in the flats. So if you had, if you owned the whole building and you had flats above it that were just like lying empty, yeah, you could make money by renting them out, but you could make a lot more money by renting them to madams. So um, the the madams then would expect a level of protection um, because they're paying you rent. Uh, or so, although it wasn't my uncles kind of, it wasn't their business so to speak. They were responsible for security. Um, and so now what you had is a situation where the Yardies were moving in to sell their drugs on the streets. Uh, there was always a permanent light on and people coming and going, so it was a good place for them to stand and congregate outside the peep shows, the hostess bars. Um, but that would be intimidating for customers that weren't coming to buy drugs. you got a load of these Yardie-looking gangsters um, outside, and so business began to drop, and so the madams began to complain, uh, particularly at night time, um, and these guys would like openly sell. So my uncles had a club in Old Compton Street, the top of Old Compton Street in Soho, uh, that went into more streets. And there was a pub there called The Spice of Life we used to drink in. But we would sit and look out the window across the road at the club, at the hostess bar we had, and the peep shows. And then at a certain time of night, all these yardies would turn up um, and they'd just start dealing drugs, openly dealing drugs. Uh, and then we began to see that that had effect on our customers. So... The conflict was not that we were getting into their game or they were getting into our game. It's It was territory, and they were interfering with our business. So um, my uncles said that we you know, we need to do something about this. Um, and Dave and George, well, George was a, a little bit aggressive, so he wanted to, like, steam right, right in there with the Yardies, and, and I knew that that would just create a war because the Yardies are pretty, a ruthless bunch of chaps, aren't they? So, um, so for me, steaming in there wasn't wasn't the right thing. I knew I'd been raised in South Africa as well, 
um, I knew, and I knew a lot of um, black guys up north, and I knew one of the main things that is significant to them is respect. You know, they're always going on about respect. Don't diss me and all that kind of stuff. So I, I knew that from working on the doors as well, you know. Like um, you might put your hands on a white guy to move him out of the way in a club. He might accept that. If you do it to a black guy, it's like, don't touch me, man. Respect. So so you had to deal with people. You had to learn how to deal culturally with people, but also socially how different people reacted to different situations. Um, and And I thought I was fairly apt at that. I could kind of suss that out quite well. So I, I said to George that if you steam in there, you're going to disrespect these guys big time and they're going to want retaliation. So what you're going to end up getting into is a war and people are going to get killed, very seriously hurt, simply because you want them to move a few doors down away from the club rather than hang outside the clubs. Is that what you really want? Now, I can understand if you were dealing drugs and they're dealing drugs and they're taking your business, you might want to go in heavy-handed. But this is a simple case of getting them to move along. Um, but also with that respecting, if they don't respect you, they ain't going to move. So you have to show some kind of show of force, but also not in a way that's too threatening. So there's a fine balance uh, between a working relationship uh, or not. <laughs> um, and so... Um, there was an incident where in uh, in Brewer Street, which is a famous street in, in Soho, where the Yardies were particularly causing a problem because they were hanging about. There was a lot of light and shelter, so they were hanging about where uh, my uncles ran, ran some businesses there. And so I just did a bit of observation for a few days. I was trying to see who the main guy is, so I would sit in some flats across the road and watch. I began to see that the, the main guys selling the drugs were not the main guys, that maybe 30, 40 yards away, there was another guy that stood um, in a doorway. Now, he didn't look like a yardie. He was a black guy as well. He was Jamaican. Uh, the Rasta guys were dealing all the drugs. But this one guy would, would sit, and he was almost like a director. I noticed, I began to notice a lot of eye contact and a lot of nods. And he was the one giving the orders. And I thought, okay, well, he's the one to approach, not not those guys. They're the soldiers. So we came up with a little plan one day, which would be for me to have a word with him and then lay our cards on the table and, and ask them politely to move. Is that with or without a weapon? <clears throat> uh, that, no, that was with a gun. Um, and the strategy worked really well. It was a strategy I, I employed um, several years later with the Albanian uh, mafia. But basically, I had the backup. So I had fingers and diamonds and, and bullets and all of those guys, the rest of my, my uncle's. Uh, all around the corner, uh, I had a Browning nine millimeter um, uh, strapped to me anyway, and I just approached this guy, um, the guy, the director, <laughs> the boss. Uh, but as I got within three, three or four feet of them, he was suddenly uh, surrounded by by these yardy, dreadlock rasters. They were very intimidating, asking me what I want, and I said I want to speak to him there. And it was like, you know, why you want to speak to him, man? You know. I said, because I ain't stupid, and I know he's the boss. And the guy kind of, he looked at me, and he said, like, you know, what do you want? What do you want, white boy? <laughs> I said, uh, well, I work for a family that run a lot of the businesses around here, and I have a business proposal for you. And he was like, a business proposal? Like, you want to get into our bit? I said, no, no, I just have a, a mutual beneficial business proposal for you, but we need to talk. 
And uh, he said, where do you want to talk? I said, in the, in the flat there where we, where we run the business. So he calmed the rest of them down and then he gave them some, like if he's not out in five minutes, they had to come steaming in with their machetes. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I, I went into the flat with this guy. He was very he was very cautious. We went into the flat. It was a bare flat. There was just a table about this length and a chair on either side. And I invited him to sit down. And as he went to sit down, I pulled the Browning 9mm out. Uh, he reacted by, by pulling a big machete out of his coat. Um, and so it, it it could have gone off. It could have gone very, very wrong at that point, you know, um, because one, one of us would probably die. But I immediately um, took the magazine out and I pulled back the slide and the bullet ejected. I placed the gun on the table. And when he saw that, he put his machete away. And uh, I said to him, I'm not here for that. OK, but I'm here to show you I'm serious. I want to respect you. Hence the gun on the table. And immediately, the, the fact that I showed him respect brought the situation right down. And I just explained to him, look, we, we run the sex industry here. You run the drugs. We don't really care about that, but you're interfering with our business because you're hanging about outside our premises. And if you're interfering with our business, that's going to cause problems. And uh, he said, are you, you know, like, are you threatening me, man? I said, you can take it however you want, but all I'm asking you to do is just move... 100 yards that way and if I don't I says well there'll be consequences if you don't um, which he didn't he reacted to that um, I think he was just trying to intimidate me to see if I was serious um, I assured him I was very very serious um, and is there any point in you getting hurt or bullets flying and the police being down here and spoiling business for both of us when we're not interfering with what you're doing we just want you to move a little bit so he took that quite well. He agreed that they would move. Um, and then we went downstairs and he gave the nod to his boys that everything was okay. Um, and then we stopped halfway across the road and uh, he said, "Are you ser- were you serious about uh, your threat of something happening? And at that point, I just gave the nod to my uncles who were in an alleyway. And they all came out. There was about nine, nine or ten of them. They all came out and kind of lined the street. None of them had guns, but they all stood there like that. You know? And, uh, <laughs> and they looked like mafia. <laughs> so um, I just wow. said to him, I said to him, I was very serious. And these are, the, these are the guys. I'm just a messenger. But these are the guys who are serious. And you don't really want to mess with them. And we don't want to mess with you because we know that you guys are serious as well. So let's let's be mutual, mutual, you know, benef- beneficial, mutual beneficiary meeting. And you guys just agree to move down the road. And so that was agreed, and they they moved, and there was no further problems at that point. What a hell of a story! I've just got one quick question. The moment you pulled out your gun in the flat, and he pulled out his machete, did your adrenaline spike? Or are you able to remain calm under situations like that? Uh, a bit of both. So um, if somebody pulls a machete out, which is about that long, uh, I'm, he was there was enough distance. I'd done a lot of martial arts in my life, so I knew about distance. And actually, I, um, I don't know if you know, if you're aware of this, but more people die of, of stab wounds than they do of gunshot wounds. So a stab wound can be a, a lot more uh, damaging um, I remember doing a bodyguard course years ago and they showed us an instant where uh, a camera where a guy, in, uh, like an IRA thing, 
um, a guy had steamed into a bookies with about 30 men in it with an Uzi and fired off the whole magazine and only one person was hit and wounded, right? And they showed another clip with about 30 guys in a, and again in a small room and a guy went in with, with a big knife and stabbed probably about 25 people and killed about eight of them, you know? Jeez. So you can do more damage with, with a knife than because you often you miss with a bullet or it, it might not hit vital, but you get stabbed quite seriously. You you're probably going to die. So if the statistics are more people die from stab wounds than do have gunshot wounds. Um, and so I, I knew uh, range. I, there was a table between us. I did know. I was calculated to know I've got enough time to be able to stop him if he comes at me. But there was also a good chance I would get cut quite seriously in that conflict. So, so when I pulled the gun out immediately and he pulled the machete out, I... Like within a millisecond, I released the magazine from it and put it on the table, and I could see then he kind of stopped because he's thinking he's going to get shot as well. And then when I pulled the slide and ejected the bullet as well, and managed to catch that and and put it on the table and sit down. Then he put his machete. He had, he had this like big holster. Machete went in. Uh, he put that back in as well. So it was quite quick. I think if I'd have just pulled the gun and held it there, he would have had no option but to to try and take me down. That's a hell of a story. Yeah, yeah. So, Did they move down the block? Yeah, yeah, they moved, and we, we kept a, a fairly amicable relationship with them. There was a few times they took the mick, uh, especially at the other end of town, at the old Compton, um, the Cambridge Circus end, where they were getting a bit cheeky and having to move on. Um, so, um, But they were a different gang from them, so we just deployed a different tactic at that point. I got a few ex-army guys that I knew to come down. We put walkie-talkies in their pockets, and uh, at the at the right second as they were walking past them, I made sure there was enough noise on the walkie-talkies. I'd click the walkie-talkies and uh, Roger Charlie Echo one two three, you know, like that, and they'd be Kh-h-h-h. so these drug dealers about oh five oh man five oh five oh, and they'd scatter. So they just assumed that my mates were coppers patrolling the area. So after four or five nights of of my mates turning up with walkies. So again, it didn't resort to violence. Uh, these guys soon soon moved on. But they, they weren't the Yardies. These were just like drug dealers. But the fact that, that they heard radio chatter and they thought they were coppers was enough to get them to move on. And when people think you're coppers, you can get away with murder. We're going to get, get to that story, yeah. Mm. So what was the next challenge when you were working for the Maltese Mafia after the Yardie challenge? Uh, there weren't too many challenges at that particular time. The only challenge that I had, this is where I went to prison for the first time, is um, I was uh, I was on shift. I was managing. So by now I'd moved. I kind of like, I started off with my uncle was just selling tickets in the booth uh, for fifty quid a shift, and I would do like two shifts a day, hundred quid a day, five days a week, five hundred quid a week. Bearing in mind, uh, I had mates that were working in factories up north they were earning £120 a week for 40 hours. So when you're earning 500 quid as, as a 20-year-old for five small shifts, it's great. Um, but then I became the bar manager. Now, the bar manager took 10% of whatever you collected, and um, plus your shift fee as well, which was a couple of hundred quid. And every shift, I would take about four to five thousand pounds. So that was four or five hundred quid per shift, rather than fifty quid per shift. And I do like two shifts a day, five or six days a week. So I was earning a lot of money. And um, 
the, the main challenges were there, especially at Christmas time, the place would be packed. And uh, the more packed it was, the more difficult it was to get rid of people. The fewer people you are, the more intimidated they are. But then you have a kind of a, a group mentality when there's a lot of people, they all want to stick together and this is not fair, we've been ripped off, you know. Um, and so I found a bucket of ice cold water often worked, uh, <laughs> throwing that over people and, and nobody else wanted that. Uh, so that, that quite worked. But um, no, there wasn't too many challenges, but there was one day an American um, guy had come in, a young American guy, maybe mid-20s, big tall lad, about six foot four, and again, he'd been fooled by the £2 ticket. you got to buy a drink. I think his bill, he, he ordered just a glass of Coke and his bill was 106 quid. And the, uh, the hostess took the bill over and he, he immediately stood. I was behind the bar, maybe about 20 feet away. Uh, he stood up and he pushed her over the table and she fell over. I came out from behind the bar and he ran towards me because the exit was here. And as he ran towards me, I, I karate kicked him in his chest and he, he flew over the table. Uh, I dragged him onto the bar, and um, that's the word, traveler's checks. <laughs> traveler's, traveler's checks. checks. He he said he panicked because he didn't have enough money. He was scared, and um, I said, how much have you got? He said he's only got like 20 pounds, but he's got traveler's checks. I said, great, we take American Express traveler's checks. Ching advert for American Express there, Sean. <laughs> so, where, where's the product placement? You know, um, <laughs> so um, he well he paid with um, with his American Express uh, travelers checks, uh, and then he left. He ran into the arms of a copper who hated me. Now uh, the cops were always trying to shut us down in in Soho. So the main the main challenges we had there with the peep shows were so we'll come back to that in a second. The main challenges were the council wanted to shut down the peep shows, and you, you, there's two laws: there's immoral and there's illegal in, in that industry. If something is deemed as immoral, it's a completely different case. It's like a civil offence. If it's illegal, it's a police matter. If it's illegal, then uh, you might get arrested. The, the police might come shut the peep show down and say that's an illegal activity. Uh, you get arrested, you get bailed, and then they have 12 months to take you to court. Uh, but tomorrow you can open again, and now they can't touch you again until the case has come to court. Mm. Um, so you can open then for another 11 and a half months of the year. And then depending on what happens at court, uh, you can just continue anyway because you just need a new front man. So you had a lot of front men for the businesses. So a front man would be somebody who puts their name on a paper, they get paid a large sum, um, and then come the end of the tax year when the tax man are trying to get a lot of money from you, they disappear back to Malta and you sign the business over to a new front man and it ain't my problem. And uh, and so that's how you, you get away with it. Um, the council knew this. So rather than call the activities illegal, they called it immoral because it was to do with sex and girls stripping off. So they said it's an immoral activity. If it's immoral, uh, the council have the right to come down and seize all of your equipment smash the place up with sledgehammers uh, and they can do that every six weeks because it's an immoral activity even though it's not illegal mm. so nobody gets arrested so you play this game so what would happen like the first time i was there that happened the, the, the guy came in from the council you know with with his file and he was like right we're from the council westminster city council and this is an immoral activity everybody out and you got to get rid of all the girls you got to get rid of all the staff and then the crew turns up they have one of those big vans with the cages on it where they, where they throw all the rubbish. 
and a load of council workers come up with sledgehammers and they literally smash all the booths and all the equipment up and they throw it into the back of the, the rubbish van uh, and they drive off and they leave it as an empty shell. Uh, so to counteract that, when my uncles were having all the booths made, um, and it was very simple because it was just um, ply, you know, plywood sheets to make a wall and then you'd make doors and then a door and you'd paint the whole thing black and you'd cut out the spaces for the, for the mirrors and the coin mix. So they had lots and lots in stock of the doors, pre-done, not painted, but all, already cut, all the coin mix there. So the council would come, they'd smash the place up and within 30 minutes of them gone, the team would be in rebuilding the place again um, then you'd have guys just roll, uh, rolling the whole thing back and within about four or five hours the peep show was ready and up and running again <laughs> and then six weeks later they'd come and smash it all again but you were making more than uh, 40 grand a week you know they were making a lot of money so the council was the cost of doing business so it was kind of a pointless exercise that was a bit of a challenge um, standing back and allowing that to happen but going back to the copper who hated me uh, they were always trying to pin something on our family name. And um, I I was the idiot that eventually allowed that to happen. So uh, I think one customer had gone and complained uh, to a copper at one point that he'd been ripped off. And, um, and this copper, um, a superintendent in uniform, had come down into the club and tried to intimidate me. And I was very rude to him. I asked him where his search warrant was. He was by himself. He was going to arrest me. I said, and he was only a little guy. I said, you ain't going to arrest no one, mate. I said, you can walk right. I actually grabbed him by the scruff of the neck and I threw him out onto the street because I knew that he had no no legal grounds to be in there. And he was by himself and he didn't have a witness or anything like that and he didn't have a warrant. So I shouldn't have done that because it created problems. So I kind of threw him out onto the street and... Um, once he was on the street, though, he became very, very angry and he lost his rag, uh, which was great for me because I just stayed perfectly calm. And he pinned me up against the wall in, in the corner of Waldorf Street and Brewer Street in Soho. And he had me by the scruff of the neck and I allowed him to do that. And he was shaking me and he was got red in the face and he was screaming abuse at me. Um, and then a member of the public came over and went, excuse me, officer, you shouldn't be doing that. That's out of order, you know. And I said, thank you, sir. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm, I'm not resisting. I'm doing nothing here. This police officer is assaulting me. And um, the guy said, I'll be a witness for you. And he, <laughs> he pulled out a fag packet and he wrote his telephone number. He kind of ripped the top of the fag packet off. He wrote his telephone number and his name. And he said, take that with you. And the cop was trying to grab it, but I managed to grab it and I put it in my pocket. Anyway, he did arrest me. Coppers turned up. I got taken to West End Central Police Station. Um, and I was being interviewed there, and I asked to see um, a senior, a senior officer, to make a complaint. And my complaint was, ah, because when we got there, um, and he's arresting me and he's he's wanting to intimidate me, you have to empty your pockets. And he grabbed the cigarette packet with the name on it, and he ripped it up, and he threw it in the bin. And uh, so I kept my eye on where that bin was, and then I made a complaint, and I said he intimidated me. There was a member of the public who saw it. He gave me his details, and that officer has destroyed the the, the details. And um, I said, if you check that bin there, you'll see where he's ripped it up. And they did check the bin, and they agreed to just let me go if I would drop wow. the complaint. So I was let go, but that put him in a very embarrassing situation. So now, fast forward now to this American. I've made him pay. I forced him to pay. He's run out into the street, 
and my misfortune who does he bump into this inspector Ooh. and I, I think within 10 minutes there was probably about 12 cops there they they streamed into the club they tried to arrest me it, it was a little bit of argy-bargy and um, I ended up getting arrested he was delighted he was delighted and um, I, I was charged with um, extortion or uh, robbery robbery the charge was robbery and it even made it into the Sun newspaper <laughs> where they, they put glass of coke cost 106 pound was the headline <laughs> way back then so that was that was the first time I really got I hadn't been into trouble with the police before um, but I got into trouble with the police at that point uh, my uncle said to me you need to go back up north for a little while let the heat die down you brought uh, attention to the name so I went back up north uh, went back to Birkenhead in Merseyside and started work on the doors um, and then nine months later, I had to go back down to Southwark Crown Court, um, and I got sentenced to just a small, insignificant nine months in prison. Uh, and that was, uh, yeah, my first time in prison. So going into prison for your first time, how did you experience that? Did you know people in there? Were you, were you safe? Mm, I didn't know anyone in there. Um, I was first of all sent to Brixton Prison, uh, which was quite an experience because Brixton's very Victorian. Um, that was the days when um, there was no toilets in the cells, so slop out. Uh, I can... You know, Sean, I'll never remember... I'll never, never remember. I'll never forget walking into Brixton Prison for the first time and just seeing the brown stains coming down the windows of, of, of feces mm. uh, and the smell. And then watching these guys going around with shovels picking up these newspapers that are full of poo... And uh, and socks because guys are crap in socks and tie them oh. on and throw them out the window because oh. you don't want that smell in your cell all night. So they oh. crap on newspaper or an old pair of socks. They'd fling it out, and some guy would be on the job of what they called the bomb squad. The bomb squad. So um, <laughs> I can remember <laughs> my first time in, in, in prison, and a guy giving me advice and saying, "Whatever you do, son, you don't want to get on the bomb squad." And I was like, "What's the bomb squad?" And he said, "Did you see them? Did you see them lads picking up all the crap?" I said, "Yeah." He said, "That's the bomb squad," uh, because often um, a game would be to try and hit them <laughs> with something as well. So you, you don't want that job, uh, entertainment. So um, yeah, I made sure I never got on the bomb squad. So that was that was quite um, that was quite different. Um, but I was very fortunate. I got put into a cell with with a, an old timer. He'd been in. A, it was like a petty thief, pickpocket kind of. It, it was right out of an Oliver Twist film, you know. He, he, he could have been uh, Dodger in his younger years. Literally, he was like that. Alfie, his name was. Um, but yeah, very experienced, you know. I think probably spent seventeen years out of the last twenty in and out of jail on small sentences. Very amiable character. Um, but I got put in with him, and he knew I was kind of fresh and never been in jail before. So, yeah, he showed me the ropes. He's the one who taught me about don't get on the bomb squad. Um, told me to keep, you know, keep your head down, you'll be all right, blah, blah, blah. And he was a real character, but he, he kind of showed me the ropes and uh, told me who not to get into trouble with. Be careful who who you argue with, who you don't. Um, yeah, it was quite an experience. And also, that was the days when you had to wear the stripy shirts and they wanted you to have the top button buttoned up, you know? And uh, the screws 
wore these peak caps right right down like sergeant majors and they'd scream and shout at you they wouldn't get away with that today um but they would they would scream and, and, and shout and so i learned a lesson as hard as you might think you are you know there was one prison officer uh, he reminded me of that copper um and he must have been in the army because he'd like one of the tricks the guys do in the army in the army when they wear those peak caps is they 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 cut the inside of it with a razor blade so the peak comes down even more so he had one of those hats on where the peak came down like that like it was literally like that i don't know how he saw out of it and uh, he was and he's only a little fella screaming and shouting at me and i got fed up of doing this top button up so i ripped the button off and um on one of the slop outs you know you go to slop out and you see all the rats jumping down down the drains when you went in there i mean it was uh, it was horrible cockroaches on the floor and um rats in the in the box but um i'm coming back from from slopping out and he's on the stairs and he shouts at me lawson get that effing top button done up now you know and so i answered back to him in a a, a rude way uh, shall we say and told him where he could stick his top button <laughs> uh, he was on his own at that point so he didn't do anything but I went, I went back into the cell, and uh, after bang up, literally, I start, I heard about twelve footsteps like that, you know, and and then they stopped outside the cell, and they actually lined up about four uh, riot cop um, screws this side, and four on that side, um, and just him there, you know. So they were lined up against the wall, and um, the key went in the door, and I thought, oh, here we go, mm-hmm. here we go, you know. And I uh, opened the door and he said, step out, Lawson. So I've stepped out and I've looked to the left and looked to the right and these guys have got their buttons and he's like, and what have you got to say for yourself now? I said, I'm awfully sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I should never have spoken to you like that. I don't know what came over me. I, said, <laughs> I was really stressed and, uh, you know, it's my first time in prison. And, and, and look... I haven't got a top button, and you screamed that. I, I just didn't know. Right then, he says, "Don't ever talk to me like that again." I said, "I promise you, I won't." He said, "Get back in your cell." And so I went back in, and I thought, "I ain't playing that game, you know. <laughs> I ain't playing that game." So I went back into my cell, and that was that. But it was a, a valuable lesson at, at that point. Did any of the prisoners try any funny stuff? Oh man, there was one guy. I, I got moved to a different prison. I think I was in Pentonville at that point. Now bear in mind, I'm only in for nine months, you know. I'm, I'm getting shipped around from Pentonville to Brixton to Wandsworth, um, and then I'm going to get sent to an open prison uh, on the Isle of Sheppey in Kent. So I don't want any hassle. I don't want certainly want to hassle with the screws. And um, I remember there was this guy, this uh, this black guy, who worked on on the line on the food line. So you you go, you'd come. I was now on the top floor. So you come down all the way down the stairs, right? And then uh, excuse me, come all the way down the stairs, and then you'd pick up your plate. You grab some bread, and then you'd go along the line, and you get your dollop of mash, your dollop of meat. One guy's job was to he had this like, kind of like long pallet knife, a little piece of butter. It was a round little patty of butter. His job was to pick it up off the tray, put it on your plate, pick it up, put it on the next plate. That's all he had to do. I'm, I'm now going along in the queue, but and, and I get to this part for the butter, and he's talking to his mate about what was on telly last night. And I'm standing there and I'm waiting, and he's talking. So I have to stuff it, and I've grabbed the, the thing and I've put the butter on. And then he's giving me a bit of grief. That's my job, man. Don't you do that. I said, oh, shut your mouth, you idiot, you know. Uh, now, he was uh, a lifer. So you've got some, some little naive 
nine monther in, telling a lifer to shut his mouth, and he's got a reputation. And he's told me, I'll, sh- I'll, I'll teach you to shut your mouth, whether I'll see you in the yard. I'm going to cut you up, man. And I was like, it's, if you're going to do it, do it now, you dickhead. You know, and um, and he was fuming. He was fuming mad. And everyone's looking at him. And the thing is, you know, in prison, that if you if you have a go at somebody, you have to do something about it. Because if you don't, you're going to be the weak one. So, um, and I, I'm fresh at this. I'm, I'm new at all this, right? So anyway, he's, he's mouthed off that he's going he's gonna to do me. Uh, and that's it. And by the time I get back up to my cell and go in, I'm, I'm in with this other guy now, and I, I tell him what's happened. I said, that tall black guy in the butter. He said, oh, man, he's a lifer. He's hot-tempered. What did he say to you? I said, he said he's going to do me in. He's going to cut me up. He's going to kill me, man. He said, okay, your life is now in danger. And I said, what do you mean? He's a lifer. He got nothing to lose. You've disrespected him. Again, this whole disrespecting in, in front of people. He's now threatened to do you. If he doesn't do you, it's going to look bad on him. He's going to look weak. So you're going to have to be very careful. Um, and also in prisons in, in in those days, I don't know how it is now, but you go out to the exercise yard, you got a lot of the black guys, they stick to one end of the street, you know, the white guys on the other side of the yard. And, and people, there's a few that mix, but pr- predominantly people stick to their own areas, you know. And they had this stupid system in, in, uh, in ones of the Pentonville can't remember but they had these like circles that went bigger and bigger and you'd have to just like walk around in circles and every time i'd walk around plus where all the black guys stood i could see him nudging his mates and going that's him there and i'm thinking oh man this is this is getting serious you know i'm like i'm out of here next week i don't need this but fortune was to favor me in in an unusual way one of his other jobs was was cleaning the toilet so he's out of his cell a lot he was he would clean out the the slop out areas, and there was one particular screw on my landing who was pretty much he was if you were okay with him, and you got on your buzzer because you needed uh, a crap, he was pretty good at letting you out your cell unless you were an, an ass and he, he you had to do it in your potty or your bucket or whatever. So I've got on I've got on the buzzer and he's come to the door. What is it? I said, any chance? My, my guts are really hurting me. Is there any chance? And what he would do is let you shut the door yourself so there'd be this one screw and he'd be maybe looking after three or four landings and he'd say okay i want to hear that give me a shout when you're out i want to hear the, the door shut you know and you shout that's me boss and i need hear hear the slam so he's let me out and he's gone back down and anyway i've gone into the toilets and who's in there it's the butter guy mm-hmm. and um he's he's kneeling down on the floor in the toilet and he's clean he's cleaning and i thought i have to do something here I have to do something because uh, the guy's going to kill me, you know. So I just steamed straight in. Um, I don't like remembering these things, Sean, you know, because it's, it's disgusting, really. It's horrible. And when you're, when you're telling stories, you're remembering. So all those other things I've been sharing with you, I'm visualizing them. Um, my life is very, very different today. So the things I'm telling you or you guys watching, I'm not telling you in a boastful way. I'm, 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 I'm really, I'm disgusted with myself. Yeah, you, you don't come across as a boastful right? person at all. You come so, across as, as very um, humble. Well, you've been through things and you've learnt your lesson. Um, when I think of that, I haven't thought of those things for a long time. But I needed to take action at that point, and so I walked in and I just kicked him on the back of the head. His face smashed into the toilet, and some of his teeth came out, and there was a lot of blood, and he was knocked unconscious, and 
and I quickly went back to my cell and, sh- and shut the door. Um, and that afternoon, there was a lot of scurrying around the prison. An ambulance had come in. He was taken to hospital. Um, people were wondering who did it. Um, it wasn't pinned on me. A few days later, I was shipped out of there. Um, but it's it's not anything I'm, I'm proud of. You know, I, was, I often wonder what happened to that guy because he was in a bad way. And for the sake, you know, it shows you the ridiculousness of things. For the sake of a piece of butter and saying, come on, man, hurry up, or uh, you get it yourself and they want to kick off with you, it, it just shows you, you know, prisoners like um, it ignites so quickly. It's just like look an amplifier. At, just look at someone the wrong way. Who are you looking at? I'm not looking at nothing. You calling me nothing? Bam. Yeah. If it's going to go off, it's going to go off. I think what happens in prison is you can quickly become acutely aware of body language you read people really well um you can detect um nonsense when you hear it but also you're constantly trying to gauge someone have they had a bad day what do they want if they come to your cell what are they after have they just had a dear john somebody just died do they want are they in a rage because you meet all all kinds in prison from raging psychopaths to guys that have been in for a bit of shoplifting and everything in between and so you become a bit of an expert at reading people you're always on defence. I always say prison's like a big amplifier. Small problems come in this end, and by the time they get to that end, they're, they're huge because you've got nothing to do but think about something all day long in prison. Um, and so it's a very volatile place, and obviously a lot of people want to intimidate you, um, and you have, to, you have to be able to back it up. You have to be able to confront people. And often people will push you to see how far they can go, and then when, when you stand up to them, they're the ones that might crumble. In fact, when I was in prison in, in Scotland some years later, one of their favourite expressions was, if, if a guy confronted you and you stood up and said, what are you going to do about it? Oh, nothing, man, I was only messing there. You would then say, uh, would, you like, uh, would you like some custard with that crumble? <laughs> so that was the first time I heard that I thought I'm going to use that one day and there was there was one occasion where I used it where a guy was trying to jump in front of the queue for the tuck shop and, and uh, I said no back of the queue and he was like what are you going to do about it I says my cell's only over there so why don't we come and talk about it ah oh, I was only messing big man and I was finally able to use the line I was like oh yeah would you like some custard with that crumble <laughs> And uh, that's the last thing you want to hear when you're in prison, because you know, that's a shame. But um, I, I knew at that point that if you didn't if if you didn't respond, you were going to be the victim. So prison is a very volatile place, and uh, you have to you have to stand up for yourself or or make a lot of friends. And I wasn't really one for making a lot of friends, so I would either keep my head down, stay out of the way, try and be invisible, stand up to myself when I needed it. But there was a few times I got shipped to another prison and a couple of the guys from Soho were in there um, uh, who were very funny guys because they were a bit mad. Who were they? Mad. Oh, there was a guy called Lindsay and his, and his brother Dave and um, they, they lived in Earl's Court but one night in Soho, uh, it was fireworks night and we were setting fireworks off on the roofs and all these coppers turned up and like chased us off the roof. They said, you can't, set fireworks off within 100 metres of the public. So we'd had a few beers and we took our fireworks and we headed down to the embankment and we climbed over um, this wall down onto a little pier. It turned out we were actually on a, on a um, 
the Riverboat Police Station. <gasps> and they had one of those little, it's like a little miniature tug. It was a little police boat. <clears throat> it was sitting there with the keys in it. <gasps> and the police station was empty. Um, what we didn't realise at that time, it became apparent later, um, there was some um, disaster some boat had sunk or something on the Thames that night. So all riverboat police were, were, were called to this incident, hence the police station being empty and there's one boat there. And Lindsay's like, oh, the keys are in the boat. So there's about six of us. So we've jumped in the police boat. We stole the police boat. Um, we started going up and down the Thames, right past the Houses of Parliament, Big Ben and all that. We found this huge piece of uh, polystyrene floating in the water. Lindsay decides to let a bit of rope out and water ski on this polystyrene and so we had a jolly good laugh in this in this police boat we drove it back to the police station the guys who lived in Soho we got out and went back Lindsay and his brother they've taken the boat and uh, shored it and it was caught and then realised everyone's fingerprints over it so they've set it on fire and blew it up <gasps> alright so the next day on the, on, the, on the news at 10 was this this disaster but also it came on that some thieves had stolen this police boat and um, set it set it on fire. Mm. So they got they got nicked for that, and uh, so they they were in jail. So when we went to jail, and of course, like you know, we were partly responsible because we we got in the boat. But anyway, they made some kind of deal with the old bill that you know we we'd get let off because we you know they they encouraged us into the boat. We didn't realize all, all that kind of stuff. But it was just it was just madness. It was just like crazy stupid stuff. But they. They were in the prison when I went there, so I had some friends and some backup. Um, but yeah, prison's a dangerous place. But finally, I, I, I did get sent to the the open prison, um, and that was just really carte blanche to do whatever you wanted. I mean, I never saw so many drugs in my life than I ever saw in that prison, mm. because guys had just dropped drugs off, blocks of weed, and uh, I mean, I got put uh, in a, in a dormitory in the end. Uh, well, when I first arrived, I couldn't believe it because you got a, a key to your own door and there was proper showers and you had a toilet and a TV room and a, and a snooker room. It was it was like a holiday camp, you know. It didn't really do anything in terms of rehabilitation. Um, and then when you're in your last kind of eight weeks, you get moved to, to the billets um, and you share with about 16 guys, eight beds on either side. But I got put in with a guy there called Potsy who was finishing off a life sentence. And he opens up his little bedside cabinet and it was like a bar. Yeah, whiskey, vodka, gin. <laughs> he had a couple of blocks of, of of weed, and I was just like, "Wow!" And there was two scousers in there, and they were they were window fitters. They worked for they worked for like Everest, and um, they were experts at taking windows out. So they would take the window out at night time when there was fewer guards on. They take the whole window out, climb out, go and collect their parcels, come back in, <laughs> and put the window back in place with these little wedges and little hammer that they tapped the window back uh, back in with, and. Uh, it was a bit of an experience. Wow. So it didn't really do anything for me. Um, but I was now back up north and then started working on the doors. I didn't come back down to Soho for a few years then at that point. So on the doors, you are reading the book. There are problems in Liverpool and Manchester with the doors, whereby it gets to the point where a specialty team has to be brought in to fix situations. Yeah, and you, are you the leader of that team? Yeah, I just started off as as, as a normal a normal doorman. Um, like I said to you, I'd, I'd done a lot of martial arts in my life, so I was 
I could handle myself pretty well. Which martial arts did you do? Different forms of karate, so Bushido, a style called Bushido Budawaza, and um, a bit of Kung Fu. And just growing up, I was really fascinated by um, seeing Bruce Lee and Enter the Dragon. So I immediately went home and made a pair of nunchakis out of a broomstick, <laughs> uh, much to my mum's annoyance, and, and the, the chain off the bog, and uh, became quite proficient. I became very good at nunchakis and um, trained a lot of myself. I had a Chinese friend that would, would train us and teach us. But I did lots of various martial arts throughout the years, entered a few competitions and did quite well. Um, so I was confident in that area. Um, and also I thought I was pretty good at ascertaining a situation uh, working things out, planning things was kind of my speciality. So I started work in um, in Oldham, uh, actually. My brother worked on the doors with me at the time, and he had a team of men. There was a head doorman there uh, called Andy, um, and they invited me on. I needed a job at that point because Soho was finished and I was back home. Um, I was a single dad at that point. I'd been married and divorced and had a little boy, and so I needed to provide. And so I took this job on the doors. Uh, Oldham was a, a crazy place, up your neck of the woods. <laughs> and um, I worked at a nightclub called Nick's Nightclub in Oldham. And um, first night there, somebody tried to stab me through the front door. I was put on the front door after the after the club had closed. So no one's going to get in now. You know, it's past entry time. Uh, I don't mean the club had closed and everyone had gone, but past entry time, which was, I think, midnight. After midnight, no one else was allowed in. So I had the nice, easy task of just being on the door, and if anyone came, said, sorry, mate, we're, we're shut now, you know. And this guy was making a lot of noise, and in the end, I opened the door to see what, it, what he wanted, and this hand came in with a knife. I was fortunate I managed to step back, and I managed to... There's this move that you do in, in, in martial arts where you, you hit twice that way, um, and the knife fl- flew out of his hands, and um, the manager of the club happened to, to be there. And uh, I'll never forget his name. He had the, the name of that Australian pop star soap guy, Jason Donovan. So his manager was called Jason Donovan. <laughs> and um, But he saw it, and then he said to our manager, I want him as head doorman. Mm. So I quickly moved up to become the head doorman of that club. Um, but we had a, a really serious major incident there within about a week, two weeks of that. Uh, there was a lot of drugs being dealt in Oldham at that time. And... Um, there was a guy uh, I worked I worked with a lot of a lot of different guys but one of the doormen was called Tony and Tony Stone really tall black guy and over in the corner by the bar on the on the upper level of the club was um, a white couple that had kind of slumped to the floor they were just slumped against the floor this big fat girl and this this rough looking lad and um, I said to Tony take one of the other guys and just wake them up I mean if they're out of it they need they need to leave you know Ah, oh, no, man, I'll, I'll take care of that myself. Look at the state of them. What he didn't realise is that they'd just taken uh, speedballs and it hadn't kicked in yet, so they were still in the doped-out state of it. But they're they're now about to go hyper. And with speedballs, they can get a lot of energy and they can often not feel pain. And so it hadn't quite kicked in. And Whatever they'd just taken, it just knocked them out. Anyway, he's gone to shake them and wake them up, and quite gently... Um, uh, and then all of a sudden, boom! Their eyes opened. They were like, uh, they were like uh, Tyson Fury when he when he when he got up from that twelfth round when <laughs> when Wilder knocked him out, and everyone thought it was over. It was like the Undertaker off the wrestling one. He just was like, boom, back up again. And uh, and these guys just this guy just got up and he stuck a glass in in uh, in the bouncer's face, cut all his face to pieces, and so it kicked off then. And 
all the bouncers came and the guy got thrown out. Uh, his girl, the girl was a handful, man. She was a beast. She took about three doormen uh, down the stairs with her and uh, they were all rolling over the, the, the place. Jesus. By the time we got we got down to the front door, uh, two other bouncers and my brother had got the guy out of the club um, and it was on... It was on a on a junction. They had those railings that went around the corner. They had him up against the railings. My brother was standing in front of him saying to him, what's your problem, man? Um, and the guy snap-kicked my brother in the shin and actually broke his Ooh. broke his shin quite badly. My brother's got metal plates in his leg there. But all I heard was this, this scream Ooh. that you don't really want to hear from your brother, but completely snapped his shin mm. um, and then managed to break free. Um, and so... Uh, at that point, the manager had called the cops because someone's been glassed now. So these cops turned up. Um, the last thing, I, then I, I gave chase with with the uh, the guy who broke my mother's leg. I, I wanted I wanted to hurt him, uh, and there was a copper as well. Um, but this guy could run, man. And um, finally, he gave up the ghost and, and managed to catch him and tackle him to the ground. And he got arrested. And uh, as we came back around in the police van, to where there was three coppers with the girlfriend um, right outside the club. The three coppers are now lying on the floor, right? Their ties are missing. Their shirts are ripped open. She's gone. <laughs> Terminator. <laughs> and, and then someone spots her in a taxi. So the coppers stop the taxi and they drag her into the back of the van. And the only way they could shut her up was she got a right hand right in the face to, to shut her up because she was kicking off. And they were like super strong. They were like the Hulk or something. I mean, seriously, seriously strong. Um, uh, so it, it was, it was crazy. It was a crazy night. Um, turned out that the guy who broke my, my brother's leg was a notorious drug dealer up there and he was on bail for, um, for murder. He threw, um, he threw a rival, um, drug dealer off the landing of a black block of flats about seven stories high and the guy had died. So he was on bail for that. They hadn't got enough proof. So it was, it was crazy. Um, so finally, we, we managed to get everyone out of the club. The club's now now finished. Um, but a few phone calls had been made in the meantime. And we parked our car across the road in a, in a quick fit car park. And um, we managed to get everyone out early because there'd been all this trouble. So the club, rather than us leaving there at 3 a.m., we, we were out of there about um, half two. We were sitting in the car and four black Range Rovers pull up outside the club mm. we're sitting in the car and about 12 black guys get out with shotguns <sighs> all right now we're watching the scene unfold fortunately they're looking at the club they ain't looking at us because we're sat over here so we're sat in the car and these these you can imagine there's four of us in the car uh, driving back to Birkenhead and these guys get out and they're banging on the door of the club they've got shotguns so we just like slid down in, mm. in our seat in the car mm. and tried to hide and they didn't see us uh, and a few minutes later there was blues and twos and these guys jumped in the car and were gone but it was a close call I mean fortunately we'd left the club but I think it obviously that would have been a very serious situation at that point um, and then uh, it, it was going to go to court at some point later but uh, a deal was brokered between a guy that that we knew and a guy that knew them and so they paid a significant amount of money for no evidence to, to go forward 
uh, and that was the end of that. So it, it never came. Uh, we didn't really want to involve the police anyway. So it never it never came to anything. But um, from from that, that really kind of, uh, I guess it, it boosted our ability to be able to handle situations. Um, and the security company I worked for at that point, uh, they began to use us. I worked with guys that were ex ex military guys. Uh, there was a guy who was uh, a former paratrooper, a guy from the South African Special Forces. Um, a few other guys like that, and we formed a tight team. So our company began to use us to go to nightclubs around um, Burnley and Bolton, all these areas up your way, mm -hmm. mate. I don't think we worked in Widnes, <laughs> but uh, Blackburn, Burnley, Oldham, um, Liverpool, all, all the places. We would get sent to where the local bouncers had lost control because you come from a fairly small town, Sean. You know in those small towns you've got gangsters who have a reputation, um, if there's any if there's any problems, there's going to be comebacks. So, for instance, say a, a group of local um, hard men from Witness had gone into a nightclub. There'd been a problem with the bouncers. You know, next week they're going to come back, and they're going to want revenge, and then ends this cycle. You know, and of course you get the whole attitude, don't you? I'm sure you've heard it many times in your life. Do you know who I am? And I couldn't give a toss who you are because I don't really care about people's reputations. Um, which is a dangerous thing because you should actually care about people's reputations, <laughs> I discovered. Um, but I didn't really care about that. And every town has them. Do you know who I am? And maybe it's something they did 20 years ago. Maybe 20 years ago they pulled a shotgun out on somebody and they've lived off that one incident for 20 years and you don't want to mess with him because he's a psycho and then everyone's scared of him. And I didn't go along with that particularly well. But how you deal with that situation in places like Widnes or Burnley or Blackburn or Oldham is, if you bring in a team of men who are highly trained from, from outside into that situation and those guys turn up and they want to storm in or, or not pay or come in and, and you don't let them and they go, do you know who I am? And you go, I couldn't care less who you are, mate. Uh, that's how you solve the situation because either they're going to back off or it's going to end quite violently. Uh, we always had the upper hand because usually at that point they're either coked up or or, or drunk and so it, it's easier to, to, to beat these fellas when they're like that you know and we were we were really highly trained and we were proficient at what we did and so our company used us to go to these different nightclubs where lots of violent situations happened yeah, particularly in, in Blackburn Have you got stories of any that were um, really problematic? Yeah um, I think the first problematic one was Blackburn and then Preston What I found is in, and also then Manchester, uh, Manchester was very problematic. But <clears throat> what I discovered, like in Liverpool, Scousers are more ready to have a one-on-one. -on -one. They'll, they'll have a go. They'll have a go straight away. So if if a guy's trying to get into a club or a problem, you're saying he ain't coming in. He'll have a go with you there, then and there, right? One-on-one, -on -one, mate. One-on-one, -on -one, mate. Let's do it, you know. Um, whereas in those other places, it was always they always get on the phone. So. If you worked in Liverpool first, then you've gone to like Manchester or Blackburn, you're kind of expecting confrontation straight away, but you don't get it. And they, they just back off and they go, you're getting it, mate. You know, we're having you. <laughs> and they get on the phone and then for various reasons, they're trying to establish who you're working for because they don't want to tread on someone's toes, whether you've got backup or they're trying to get backup. And they're always trying to get you shot. The amount of times they're going to get you shot. You're getting shot. You're getting shot in Manchester. Oh, man countless times you're going to get shot but um, problems in, in Blackburn uh, initially were 
I think, again, small towns, small town mentality, small town comebacks. But there'd been a bit of a problem uh, with the previous bouncers. One of the bouncers had had his arm broken in, in a fight. And um, usually what we do, when we, got, when we took over a new door, we'd keep one or two of the previous doormen. We'd offer them a job so that they could point us to the guys who were banned. So you always needed at least one of them to say, them, them guys, they're their trouble, they're not. Um, we would go in and then try and reestablish order, clean up the nightclub, um, and then put in a permanent local team. So that was our job. So we would go with um, shin pads, cricket boxes, stab-proof vests, knuckle dusters, collapsible truncheons, the whole works. And it would be a very, very, very violent, zero tolerance, zero drugs, zero tolerance, very hard to try and establish order. And so that really became my life. And because I was cold-hearted, because I was... I don't know, I was an angry young man, I guess. Uh, that violent aspect excited me. I enjoyed, to my shame today, going home at night with blood on my shirt or boasting about those teeth that got knocked in. And um, and that was just the sick idiot that I was in those days. And um, But I enjoyed it. So when it kicked off, we made sure that we handled it properly. But there was, these guys came back who broke this bouncer's arm and, so we very methodically planned how to get these guys out of the club. Um, and we've, we got the ringleader, and I broke his leg. Um, we put his leg over two beer crates and dropped a, something heavy on it, and it broke. And and that resolved that situation. And again, and again I, I didn't care about that. It was nothing to me. Um, but uh, Manchester was particularly crazy because uh, there was a lot of drive-by shootings there. So there was a club called JFK's that we we worked at uh, near Sale, and um, there'd been there was bullet holes in the doorway where there'd been a drive a drive by shooting um, the night before. No, the night before, <laughs> the night, yeah, the night before. <laughs> so um, the uh, the manager there was connected to this guy called Jason Donovan. It was a Scottish guy called Billy Mack, and he wanted a new team in because the local team had lost control now. So we got we got taken up to Manchester. Now, bear in mind, the bouncers who are working there don't know that they're about to be sacked as well. So that can create problems, you know. So we had a guy that was our manager, Big Mick. He was 22, 23 stone. Uh, he was connected with one of the um, the Gladiators. When Remember the Gladiator series when it first came out? He was called Warrior. Uh, he was like the biggest Gladiator, the blonde-haired guy. Micah Hearn was his name. And... Um, Micah Hearn was connected with a copper in Liverpool who was bent um, and uh, I don't know if the word bent has different connotations now but a bent copper man crooked a crooked copper mm. has different connotations today <laughs> um, but he was a bent copper called uh, Ellie uh, Ellie was one of the highest ranking police officers that got sent to jail uh, he was making deals with Curtis Stone and um, uh, and the big uh, the big drug dealer from Liverpool, I can't remember his uh, Warren. Warren, Curtis yeah, yeah. Warren, yeah, Curtis Warren. Yeah. So he was connected with them, and there was a guy that he was working for. He was passing information to these people, and and Ellie uh, ended up getting arrested. Micah Hearn Warrior was 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 uh, sharing a house with this particular guy, uh, and when it all came out, and then Warrior was kicked uh, off of Gladiators, he needed to make money, so he started a security firm with our mate, and so that opened a lot of doors for us because of, of his personality status. Um, so that's how we ended up getting this door in Manchester. But we drove up there, and we get told while we're outside in the car, 
just wait there. I've just got to go in and sack the other bouncers. So it's like, okay, this is going to be interesting. And, you know, 10 minutes later, guys coming out, slamming the door, walking off, all angry. But two of them were kept on. Um, and uh, that club was, was wild because you had guys turning up there with guns. There was metal detectors to come in. So guys were turning up with gun, guns. And that was a, a whole learning curve for me, Sean, because I'm very, I was very confrontational. And you can't be that confrontational with people who've got guns because uh, they're going to want to come and shoot you. So you have to learn the language. You have to learn the whole respect thing and uh, come to some mutual arrangements. Uh, with those. So you learn a lot of negotiating skills, uh, which my brother was better at than me because I was too hard-headed. I was so hard-headed that there was contracts put out in my life. There was guys sitting in a car park with guns that wanted to shoot me, and my brother found out. But he knew he knew the guys. He was friendly with the guys that knew the guys that wanted to shoot me, and so he chatted to them and said, "Look, my brother, he don't know the score. He's just too hot headed." And so promises were made, and I wasn't shot. Um, so yeah, it was a learning curve for me. I, I, I didn't know it all, and I wasn't like I say pretending to be the hardest man in the world. There was a story where a guy comes in and the metal detector beeped, and you had to handle that. Yeah. Um, that was that was quite interesting because again it was it was really it was my brother who handled it more than me. Is um, f- when it, when it beeps, of course, you've got to search people. Well, they don't want to be searched, and now they're carrying guns into your club. And the last thing you want in a kickoff is is guns. Um, and these were pretty serious serious guys, you know. And um, in the club already were two just just normal guys. They were like city city guys. They had nice suits on, and they looked they were out of place here um so they maybe wandered into the wrong area of town but they were in like that and we stopped these guys coming in with guns and it was getting a bit confrontational my brother came over and my brother whispered in their in their ears i had a little word with them they looked over at these customers sitting over there in the suits and then the guys were like yeah yeah cheers man cheers man and then they left um and they went to put their guns in their car and then they came back in and i said to my brother what what, what was the deal there he said, oh, I just said to these guys with the guns, see them guys over there, five O, they're five O, they're undercover cops. They've looked at them and went, oh, yeah. He said, I'm just giving you the heads up. Don't bring them. He called them, they called them tings. Don't bring them tings in here. <laughs> so my, my brother was like, don't bring them tings in here. Put them in the car, come back in, and uh, I'll sort you out a drink. And the guys were like, yeah, man, respect, man, respect. So he made new friends that way, right? And then half an hour later, the suits left anyway. They weren't cops. They were just normal <laughs> partners. They left. Um, and that that was it. So so we learned how to deal with it by giving them some heads up and say, look, you can't bring them things in here, okay? You're quite happy to come in. I, I learned really off my Uncle George all those years back in Soho. Um, one night there was a, a group of um, Marines turned up. It was about 12, 14 of them. And they're all big lads. And they all wanted to come in without pain. Now, I know they're going to come in. They're going to get ripped off. It's going to kick off, right? So they want to come in without without pain. They're standing and they're arguing with me. And um, it's I'm going to get my head kicked in. It's tw- I can't fight 12 Marines, for goodness sake, you know? be lucky if I could fight one Marine, let alone 12 with him. And... Um, Anyway, were they UK Marines or US Marines? No, no, they were, they were UK. UK Royal UK, Marines. Yeah, Royal, Royal Marines, Marines yeah. right? And... Um, my Uncle George, now Uncle George is a big, big guy. The Scottish accent as well kind of helped with the intimidation. But my Uncle George went, which one are you the hardest? Right, and this guy stepped forward like that. He says, I am. 
And he's obviously thinking he's going to have a go. And my uncle went, right, you're in for free. Drinks are free all night for you. But you look after the rest of your pals and make them pay. And the, of course, now this 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 Marine, he's the hardest one. He's like, right, lads, line up, line up, lads, everyone pay. And, you know, and then he's got them all in order. And we, they didn't get ripped off. They got drinks at a normal price. They got to see girls and lingerie and all of that. They were quite happy. But every now and again, my uncle would go down and he'd go up to the the hard one and he'd say, you keep your lads in order? Yeah, I'm keeping I'm keeping them in order. And Joseph would go, get, get him another drink, you know. So I learned a valuable lesson there. I thought that was cle- that it was very, very clever because he used the hardest one to keep the rest of them in order mm. and they weren't going to back up because we would control them. So I kind of tried to use some of that technique in Manchester and learning from my brother a little bit. Um my brother was a little bit more clever. I was a bit more brutal. So I learned a few lessons from him, how to deal with that situation in Manchester. But it, it got it got crazy. But also we had a lot of great backup there. Um, there was a guy called Brian who was what they call a head. So you have different heads in Manchester, and he was a head. So a head would be a guy that's risen above, above the ranks in whatever gang he's in, and he was a known head. He looked a bit like you, bald hair, a bit stockier than you, about your height, but... Brian was a very, very dangerous man, and I've, I found out why uh, both his his wife and kids were were murdered. What? And um, Brian then didn't have anything to live for. He didn't care. And I said to him one time, Brian, how come, how come like you just don't care, like you you don't care about your life? And I remember him saying to me. Um, he always used to call me kiddo, right, kiddo. You know the way them them monks are. You're all right, mate. You're all right. He says, when a man ain't, when a man ain't got anything to live for, he's the most dangerous man because he don't care. So I always remember him saying, like, you know, if you've got nothing to live for, you don't care. You don't fear anything. And I think that had risen them up through the ranks after his wife and kids were murdered. Did I think you find that, out why they were murdered? Because he was a, he was, um, a drug dealer and it was rival drug dealers and they petrol-bombed his house. <sighs> his wife and kids were burned to death Jeez. in the house. And so he didn't care after that. Wow. So, uh, so like the first night I met him, so he had a connection with uh, with the warrior and um, with, with our boss. And the first night we were on that door, you know, all these Range Rovers again turned up, and like I don't know, maybe fourteen, sixteen black guys all got out. They all kind of lined the streets, and I'm saying to the other bouncers, "Man, it's going off here. Who are, who are this lot? Get yourselves ready. Either either we're getting out the back, right, or it's going to go off, right. But whatever happens, be prepared." And they're all like, all and they're all like looking up and down the street and making sure that coast's clear. And the next minute, there's, there's this like white guy with a bald head gets out <laughs> with his leather coat on. He's like that, <sighs> you know. And then they escort him to the door. <sighs> all right. So I'm thinking, okay, this is quite serious. And then my mate goes, oh, it's Brian. He's one of the ads. He's we're connected with him. So I was like, <laughs> so that was good. Um, and then you learn Manchester politics. Then really, that whole not doing something. Then and there, like Scousers want to, they'll take you on straight away. They call it a straightener, right? Scousers, let's have a straightener then, mate. Um, Manx don't do that, you know. They're like, they'll get on the phone. So there was one guy who was notorious, an ex-boxer called James, a bit of a psycho as well, and he was banned from the club. So the first night we're on the door, we've kept one of their doormen, and uh, we see this guy James coming along, and... Um, Damon says to me, oh, see that guy, he's, he's banned. He says, he's a nutcase though, but he's banned. Like he glassed, he glassed some, some girl with a bottle or something. 
he's a proper nutcase. He was on medication and everything. He's bipolar. He's this, that, and the other. And I said, okay, we'll, we'll go out and have a chat with him. So I've gone out. Next thing, the door's shut. Damon's not even coming out. Right? <laughs> so I thought, here we go. Um, and anyway, I've confronted this guy, James. You ain't coming in. And it got confrontational. Never turned violent. He says, you, you're dead, man. I'm going to have you shot. And he left. So I, I went back in and Damon said, like, what did he say? I said, he's going to have me shot. He said, oh, crap. Uh, if he's going to have you shot, he's going to have you shot. So a phone call was then made to Brian, one of the heads. They went around in their Range Rovers and visited James and uh, had a pleasant conversation. And the next day, James came up to the door and wanted to apologise and say how sorry he was for threatening to shoot me. Wow. There was no violence took place, but it was just enough that they paid him a visit. And so we had the backup there. But it got crazy. But I have to say, I, I think I was probably a bit of an idiot and... I would lose it. I would confront guys that I shouldn't have confronted. Um, I was lucky to walk away from that, I think. There was a situation in the book that ended up in like an armed battle on the street and bodies were strewn everywhere. Oh, that was in Preston. That was some little tiny club called Cheeky Monkeys. It was a student bar. It was down one of the, the side streets, not on the main strip where Tokyo Joe's was and all that. It was like down one of these side alleys. And it was infested with drug dealers. And again, we got we got moved in. It was a, lo- a lovely old fella, an Italian guy. He had a restaurant over the road and his son. And they were just gentle people, nice people. Never been. They weren't gangsters. They they were restaurateurs. They'd opened this nightclub because the property became vacant across the road. They were just genuine nice guys. But they got in over their heads. And now um, drug dealers are coming in from Manchester and just ruining the place you know so um we we came in quite hard again hard tactics and we threw them all out uh i worked with a, again a team of good guys i had the, the para there the south african special forces guy my brother a few other guys from birkenhead uh, we were all tooled up with uh, nunchuckers and um truncheons and knuckle dusters and stuff like that but these guys kicked off uh one night we threw them all out onto the street Again, it kicked off outside. They were, they were like kicking the door. Um, and so we just went out. We said, right, let's just have them. And we went out into the street. They had no idea what they were getting themselves into, those guys. And they were all on drugs. They were all taking tamazepan and so, all sorts of stuff, you know. Uh, it was very, very brutal. And by by the end of it, I think there was about eight or nine of them unconscious on the on the floor. It got really, it got really violent. Um, and... Every single one of them was knocked out, and I'd over, I had overstepped the mark. I had to pull some of the guys off because they, they didn't quite have the self-control that I had. But it was very proficient. I mean, like, yeah, it was very proficient. One guy had a bottle, and I worked well with Jay, the, the paratrooper. So uh, as I legs gave the guy a leg sweep, he went up in the air. Jay elbowed him. By the time he went down, he was unconscious. Um, this guy was a um, an ex-gymnast as well, this paratrooper. So he could do, do a standing backflip. He'd just stand and just do a backflip, you know. And he was into Aikido. And like he hipped, hipped through this guy. And he actually went right across the other side of the street and landed on the pavement. I'd never seen anything like it before, you know. It was like what you see in a movie. I actually seen a guy upside down in the air. and then Wow. Unconscious. So it was, it was very brutal. Um, and I knew straight away this is, this is going to end badly. Uh, the, the police are going to turn up. People were calling ambulances. Um, it's going to be bad. What we what we did do is we carried extra shirts, clean shirts with us, because guys had blood stains or ripped shirts, 
all of them had knuckle dusters on. And so immediately I got the team together and I says, right, everybody get in the back, get rid of your shirts, right, clean yourselves off, get rid of all your weapons, uh, put your clean shirts on, look presentable. Um, and the next thing you know, yeah, this copper turns up the door and he's like, what's going on out here? There's bodies all over the place. You lot have done this. And I said, officer, I said, honestly, we haven't done anything. These guys here, start, I said, we did throw three of them out and, and they started a gang fight amongst themselves. We just shut the door and I, um, I couldn't even tell you what happened. The next <laughs> thing you know, we, we got in the door and they're all, they're all unconscious. And the, the copper was like, yeah, you lot have done it. So he lined us all up and he wants inspectors and he was inspecting our shirts. He got everyone's hands to make sure we, we didn't have blood or he couldn't prove anything and he got really annoyed. And he said to me, when they wake up in hospital, and they give a statement, I'm going to come back and arrest all of you. Fortunately for us, fortunately for them as well, they did all recover. They woke up in hospital. But fortunately for us, they were they were all on Tamazipan and they couldn't remember a single thing. None of them knew how they ended up in hospital. So <laughs> we kind of got away with that. But yeah, it was crazy violent situations all the time. Because you're dealing with troubled nightclubs, places like, like I say, Oldham, you know, and just... Again, I mean, they're just repetitions of the same story, you know. I could tell you these stories all night, but you, you guys are going to get bored listening to it. They're just repetitions. Another town, another drug dealer, another broken face, and another getting away with it. So, But I guess what was happening is the level of violence was increasing in, in my life and how far you were prepared to go. So this is going to escalate now to the story that gripped me the most, which was the German. Yeah. What What led up to... You getting involved with the German first? Well, I, I'd, I'd remarried at this point and um, had two two more kids, and I was live, still living in Merseyside. Um, I I began to work with my uncle George again. So my uncle George said to me, "Why don't we open an adult DVD shop in Birkenhead?" So I found premises. We kitted it all out. We got ready to roll. But the council came in on day one of opening, shut us down. I get nicked. I go to jail. Go to to Walton jail for epoxy eight weeks I mean like nothing um, I was very fortunate there one of the bouncers that I worked with in Southport uh, was the head screw there so when I came in he managed to get me into a single cell so I got looked after but on like eight weeks you know what I mean it's just like a sneeze and you're out of there um, so I came out of that and again I'd kind of blown it with with my uncles you know um, I needed I needed to earn some more money and um, I thought well what am I going to do next by now as well, I, I, I joined a biker gang called the Nomads uh, on Merseyside. So when you think of like the Hells Angels, kind of, I hope you wouldn't look at me now and think you wouldn't see that. But uh, I had the skinhead and the, and the big goatee beard and I have the biker tattoos on my arms here and I had the big, big chopper motorcycle and I joined this, this biker gang. And um, there are things I can't really talk, talk about um, because... Um, well, let's put it this way. When you leave a biker gang, there's an initiation that has to take place. If you leave it, you can't just walk away from a biker gang. You have to get your patch ripped from you and you're probably going to take a beating as well and you'll be totally cut off. You'll, you'll be sent to Coventry. Um, and I wanted to walk away from that biker gang at that point in my time, but I wasn't prepared for any of the consequences. So I th I threatened one of the guys that I would put some plastic explosives through their door if um, if that was to occur. So a mutual arrangement was made, and I was able to walk away from that. But when the book came out, and 
so this is the second edition. The first edition uh, had that story, that story in of the biker thing. And um, I got a new publisher in the end and I removed that particular story from it because I was doing a book signing in Birkenhead, a Waterstone store, and armed coppers just came from everywhere. There was loads of them. There was police vans in the precinct, coppers coming into this undercover cops walking around the store. And when I asked the manager afterwards, what was that about? She said, um, that was because of you. And I said, like, I haven't been in trouble for 12 years or something, you know. She said, no, no, they heard through the grapevine that the biker gang uh, heard that you were back in town. And because you put stuff in the book, they were going to come and shoot you today. Holy shit. Well, unfortunately, they didn't turn up because wouldn't that have been great publicity? <laughs> um, it wouldn't have gone down too well with my mum, who was with me at the time. But, uh, yeah, they never... Because a shoot, there's nothing better than a shootout to sell books, I think. Um, but uh, they never turned up, but the coppers heard that my life was in danger. So, for obvious reasons, I can't really speak about uh, what went on in the in the biker gang. But I joined this biker gang, and um, I needed to make more money. Um, I retrained as a bodyguard. At that point, I moved back to Scotland um, with my wife, and thought, okay, I'll we'll just get away from it all, get away from the biker gang, try and settle down, try and go straight. Um, I did some training as a bodyguard, and um, I began to work with some really famous people, some big bands. Uh, rich and famous people and while that was happening as well because I was proficient with guns you know I was raised in, in South Africa my father was a policeman we didn't really go into that much but we can maybe uh, talk about that later um, but I, I was raised uh, as a young boy knowing how to strip down a brown in nine millimeter a brown in nine millimeter put it back together again and I uh, was proficient with weapons so uh, while I was working as a bouncer in Liverpool, we met a guy who was a former SAS guy who who now works for, fil for film companies providing uh, extras who are what they call um, extras with action. You get paid a bit more um, as an extra with action. Um, and he used to go to a shooting range in, in Liverpool, uh, which is which really is just the central market is the shooting range. Uh, no, no, there's this uh, shooting range on the outskirts of Liverpool, and uh, he used to go there. So we used to go shooting with him. Um, so he got us into uh, doing some film work. So we worked on um, Prime Suspect with Helen Mirren, and we were the cops that shot the, the, the bad guy at the end um, and things like that. So we were working um, in the film industry. I was doing a bit of bodyguard training at that point as well. Um, and then um, I managed to, to get some work with the Rolling Stones for a short time um, up in Edinburgh. You were bodyguarding Keith Richards, weren't you? Yeah, only, I mean, it's only for a long weekend. I mean, I can't boast to be Keith Richards' bodyguard. They have their own personal team. But I was put on um, night shift, so the personal team would go off to bed. They'd leave us babysitting them, you know. We were like the lower-ranking bodyguards. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so... Uh, so my job was to make sure that Keith Richards didn't get disturbed and then get them into the car, get them to the to the gig and then back again and then look after them again. Um, but I would I would boast to all my mates about how me and Mick Jagger were tight. I think I probably had two conversations with them, Sean, you know. Wasn't there a situation where the fire alarm went off and yeah. all, everyone had to run out of the hotel? Well, which the, would have exposed Richards. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the press was... You know, the press were camped outside the Balmoral Hotel in Edinburgh. And uh, they would set the fire alarms off to to get everyone out. But the fire to alarms flush him would, out. Yeah, yeah, literally flush him out. And the fire alarms went off. His personal team weren't around, so I'm, I got him out of his room. 
I took him downstairs with one of his aides and um, we were in this corridor which was near a fire accident and I could see all the press outside. Immediately I, I saw what was going on and so I said to him, you stay here. And then one of the photographers came in and he just got the camera shoved back in his face, kicked him out, got him there. The fire alarm went off. I got him back into his room. Um, and then the next morning, um, the head the head of their uh, personal bodyguards invited me for breakfast, a big guy called John, Big John. And uh, he offered me a job uh, as a permanent bodyguard with the Rolling Stones. But at that point, I was beginning to make money elsewhere uh, a bit more lucratively. Um, with the team of men that I worked for, we were taxing drug dealers. Um, we were working for guys that had problems with money that needed the money collecting. So we we're doing a kind of bit of debt collecting at the point. Um, so I really I threw the bodyguard career away now because I I was making enough money to buy a decent sized house in, in Edinburgh. I was driving around in nice cars, and at that point we got introduced um, to uh, well before that. Um, when I got arrested for the uh, the shop in Birkenhead, I went to an open prison near Preston called Kirkham. And in there, I met a guy who said, I know a guy who could use a team like you to do some debt collecting. So it turned out that um, in, those, in the early 90s, uh, or late 90s, there was a scam going around, uh, VAT fraud, where... Um, what gangsters were doing, instead of getting their hands dirty with drugs, they found they could make a lot more money with VAT fraud. And how they would do that is set up two dummy, dummy companies. Uh, dummy, a dummy company in the UK, a dummy company in Spain. Um, and then the company in the UK would order a million pounds worth of goods from the Spanish company, who would then invoice them for a million pounds worth of goods, send a container over, which would be empty. Uh, they send a shipping container. So they had all the paperwork, shipping container has been collected, if it ever was opened, uh, they would just say to customs, oh, no, it's, it's going to get filled at this end and it's going to go back. So they never got caught sending empty shipping containers. But they'd send it over and then they'd put in the paperwork with the government. So because of the deal with the European Union at that time, if you ordered uh, goods from from Europe, you could claim back the VAT in this country. Mm. So it was always over a million pounds. At the time, VAT was 17.5%. They claim back 17.5% of a million pounds, which is £175,000 per container. And they were doing 10 to 20 containers per week, right, at £175,000 a time. So, you know, one and a half, two million pounds a week. Um, these guys were making a lot of money. Um, that would You could get away with doing that for about three months and you had to shut everything down because it took about three months for the government to suss out the, the whole VAT fraud. Um, um, you can't do that anymore. So don't anyone try it at home. Don't try this at home. They shut that loophole down. But there was a loophole that allowed that particular crime to happen. Uh, and, of course, come that amount of money, that's going to attract gangsters on a much higher level. So uh, the real gangsters, the gangsters behind the gangsters, come out of the woodwork at that point. Uh, the businessmen, gangsters, who, who don't like to get their hands dirty, um, they leave that to scumbags like, like me and you, Sean, you know? So um, we'd, be, we'd be the idiots to say, yeah. So it became quite lucrative for us. We got introduced to, to a guy, we only ever knew him as the German because he was German, funnily enough. And uh, he was um, heavily into VAT fraud. He'd made a lot of money. Uh, he had a helicopter pad at his at his mansion and drove around in fancy cars. 
So he's making a lot of money. He had a lot of British guys working for him. Um, and, you know, that old saying, there's honour amongst thieves. It's a load of nonsense. There's no honour amongst thieves. Um, there isn't. And uh, eventually the guys he's working for are making a lot of money themselves and they take it a step too far and then the VAT come down on top and then it all comes on top of the German and now these guys disappear with, with, with all the money and the German's really angry wants his money back. So we got introduced into, into that um, as guys who were capable enough to come and find you if you were stupid enough to have stolen uh, that kind of money. Um, the first job we did, the guy had stolen um, just over £13 million from the German and of course the German wanted his £13 million back. The guy had fled over to Spain to the Costa del Sol, was hiding out there and so our job was then to to take take down some of his cohorts in the UK to establish where the guy was, get money back from them. Um, and so my life really moved on from, from being in the biker gang to being on the doors to now much more serious crime where there was a lot of kidnapping and extortion. And and just to help make ends meet as, as well, we were taxing drug dealers. So we found there was money. That, that just really happened because of Jay, the, the ex-para um, near Preston, um, a local drug dealer was mouthing it off near him, flashing his cash around because they can't help themselves, you know. Um, buying everyone drinks in the bar and all that, walking around with wads of cash and trying to be the big man. And, and Jay didn't like him very much. And so we decided we'll take the, this guy down and, and kidnap him and steal all his money because one thing drug dealers can't do is go to the police, right? So uh, for us, it was win-win. We kind of felt like we were the good guys doing Society of Flavor, getting rid of the drug dealers. And um, so that got very serious, very dangerous work. We would, we would go around with balaclavas and shotguns and kick doors in and hold these guys hostage and steal their money. And and, and yet we thought we were the righteous ones because we would flush their drugs down the toilet because we didn't deal with drugs. We were we were good criminals that, you know. The other tax men that I've interviewed, oh, they, they resold the drugs. Yeah, well, we were stupid. We were stupid taxes, right? Because, <laughs> um, I don't know, I think um, I was one of those guys that always tried to justify what I was doing, you know. Um, and I think... We we do that. Whatever bad behaviour we're involved in, we try and justify it. You know, guys who mess around and their wives justify it by saying, "Well, she wasn't giving me what I wanted, so I went there." It's like we're always trying to justify what we do, and so we we justified what we did by saying, "Oh, we don't touch drugs and we don't hurt women and kids," and um, we had these kind of old-fashioned morals that don't exist anymore. In fact, never existed then. And so we we'd flush their their drugs down down the bog and steal their money and. So we could walk away saying what a good, what good, what good um, taxes we are, you know. It's crazy. I say that to people now when I get invited to speak. You know, I, I always consider myself a good man because I didn't I didn't take drugs. I wasn't an alky. I didn't beat my wife. I provided money. I'd read my kids a bedtime story, uh, kiss them good night. But then I would just go and put on a balaclava and a shotgun and hold men hostage. But I was a, a good man, you see, because um, we flushed drugs down the toilet. So that's how I kind of justified what I did. Um, so we were doing that a lot, and, and people were getting quite seriously hurt, and we didn't care because they were drug dealers. They were scumbags. That's how we dealt with the situation. But now it moved on to, to a more serious level now where we had to go and kidnap the, these people. We went over to Spain to find this guy who'd stolen 13 million. Uh, we never got him. 
in the did, end. Did you survey his like operation, his house, and things? Did you like? Yeah. What What was the procedure with all that then? Oh, basic, basic um, CCTV, uh, basic footage, basic surveillance. So eventually, so I sent two of the guys over. So the South African and the para to go over and uh, recce the, the place to try and find the guy. It was a bit sketchy. We had clues to where he was. Uh, but it, after two weeks in Spain, just outside Benidorm, they, they found this guy and they found his place. They um, they followed him. They knew his routine. He loved going walking his dogs. He had these two big Rhodesian Ridgeback dogs, so they were going to cause a problem. Uh, he had this huge mansion and he had um, blacked-out windows. He had CCTV. He had a personal security guard, a uh, bodyguard with him all the time. So all of those things we were aware of, uh, what we were coming into. So when we went over then to take him down, um, a plan was put in place, military style. Um, I loved I loved the plan. What was um, the plan? Well, the plan was, <laughs> it was almost comical, okay? So we looked at the situation and I said, okay, going going in there, we also knew that he kept um, a forty four Magnum in a little cubby hole by his front door so he could reach it quite, quite easily. How did you know that? Um, we had an insider who... He put his on to the guy. So this guy was taking him. So some of that VAT money, uh, he would take him bags and bags of uh, money. So so this guy, uh, Lloyd, said, look, I've been over to his house a few times. The last time I, I went over was like three million pounds in holdalls. And uh, he wasn't even in. He said to me, let myself in, left a key, and then go put the money in the office for me in, sh- in shoeboxes. He said, I went into his office, and the wall was probably about 20 foot long. And there were shoeboxes all the way along the wall, about five high, all full of cash. He said, there must be 30, 40 million pounds in this office, right? And it's all yours. So that was a bit of a, a carrot on a stick for us, you know. And that's all, you talk about red mist when you get violent, but we had a different kind of red mist, which was shoeboxes full of money. Green mist. Um, yeah, and that was our motivation. So, um, but how are we going to do that now? He's got dogs that patrol that patrol the grounds. He's got a girlfriend that lives with him. Um, he's got a personal bodyguard. He's got blacked out windows that look like bulletproof glass to me. Um, he's got surveillance. How are we how are we going to do this now? Across the road uh, from from where the guy lived, there was a like a hacienda style villa uh, that a lot of um, loose people would use. A lot of sexual activity went over there. And we noticed in the surveillance that sometimes the people would knock on his door by accident and they go, is this villa, whatever? And he'd go, mate, honestly, it's over there. Right? He'd get really annoyed at it. So I thought, okay, why don't we uh, turn up with a load of sombreros on with suitcases, like we're all drunk and all that, and bang on his door. And he'll open the door and, he, and, and that's it. And then we'll, we'll, we'll take him. So that was the plan. <laughs> uh, we were going to take him that way. Because otherwise we were looking at, you know, you have to drug the dogs, so you have to throw meat over. What about the bodyguard guy? How are we going to take it? It just, there was too many unknowns in the house, even though we had a, a layout. The guy described the layout of the house and, and where the gun was and the alarm system. We knew we could handle that, but getting in was going to be the issue. Um, and we will just take him down and we'll we'll take the bodyguard down at the same point. So that was the plan. And also the plan was that he'd have to be killed, really, because... Uh, the German only wanted his 13 million back and we weren't to touch the rest of the money. Um, we were going to get commission on that 13 million of 10%. So it was like 1.3 million for us. It's, it's, it's a good a good amount of money. 
um, but he didn't want the other money touched. Um, but we were going to take it anyway. Um, but we knew by taking all the money, uh, this guy had access to a lot of money and with that a lot of connections, that there's no way he's not going to want to send a team after us to find out who we were. Now, we were unknown. We were below, below the radar. We didn't go around with big mouths trying to brag it up and be hard men. If you put my name about the local gangster fraternity, they probably wouldn't know who I am. Never heard of him. And um, and so people go, I've never heard of him. He wasn't a proper gangster. Well, the proper gangsters are the ones you don't hear of. You know, the, the ones with the big mouths are the ones that are going to draw too much attention to themselves. So our thing was to stay beneath the radar, work word of mouth only, do the job and go. And that was it. And, and we, that way we could live our lives. We were all family men. I had kids and a family. I didn't want to bring that kind of heat to my family. And my wife at the time had no idea what I was doing, except I would turn up with vast sums of cash. She knew there was something dodgy going on, but she wasn't aware exactly what it was, you know. So I didn't want to bring that kind of attention, but we knew the guy would have to be killed. And so all of that was plotted out. We found a building site. I mean, take it straight out of a scene from a movie again building site where this foundation's built we knew the concrete was going to be poured in there the week later all we had to do was dig a grave put his body in there the concrete was going to come in he'll never be found end of story you know uh, where did we get the idea from watching a gangster film you know uh, but but it was going to work and so um we had to argue about who was going to pull the trigger who was going to kill him and i said look i'll i'll, I'll shoot him in the head um and then we'll take all the money and then we'll head back to Portugal we had all these hire cars with different number plates and we'll get we'll get out of there and we'll have a nice lunch later in the afternoon again just cold enough to be able to do that be willing to do it and and then walk away um, but fortunately it didn't happen because that, that very day that we planned to kidnap him a minibus turned up outside his house mm. we were like literally ready to go in uh, we also had police uniforms because I'll tell you about that impersonating coppers as, as well but we were thinking about we'll go in as, as police because that tactic had worked for us before. Um, but uh, all his family turned up for a holiday that particular mm. day and they stayed for two weeks. So we had to call it off and we went back again. We went back again and we were struck down with a mystery illness, like seriously bedridden, shaking illness. Landed back in the UK and it all disappeared. Mm. So I don't know what happened there, but um, it never happened. Um, so we moved on to... We have to now finance these operations. Um, and uh, it takes a lot of finance because we're buying weapons as well. We're buying uniforms. And we're only going to get our money later. So nothing was financed for us. We were financing these things ourselves. So now we needed more money. So now we're, we're taxing drug dealers again. Um, but also there was associates of this guy in Spain that was going to have to get um, kidnapped so we could earn some money. He'd stolen a few million as well, maybe five or six million and uh, he had a big house in Staffordshire, huge house. His He was divorced. His wife had a huge house, again, with a helicopter pad on it. Uh, in the guy's driveway was maybe two, three million pounds worth of cars, Lamborghinis and Ferraris, McLaren, Rolls Royces. I mean, these guys were, were coining in big time. Um, and so, yeah, we ended up kidnapping him and his whole household and his mates, and it, it was comical. Like, it was literally comical it was ridiculous um I, again we went in as police officers we got the idea actually i told you we worked on the set with helen mirren and prime suspect so we addressed as armed police uh, 
and in between in between shoots, um, some crowds had turned up trying to see from where we were fenced off what's going on, and we were walking uh, back to wardrobe, uh, about four of us with police uniforms on, and members of the public were like, "What's going on there, officer?" And we were like, "Oh yeah, right, oh, yeah, move back, please, move back, please." As a, you know, and they all moved back, and so we kind of cottoned onto this idea that if you're dressed as a copper, people will obey you and they'll listen to you, you know, and so. That we that was more crime that we got into impersonating police officers. We managed to get some real police uniforms and police badges. And there was this other guy uh, who was connected with the German and connected with the guy in Spain. He'd stolen a lot of money, and so we did surveillance on his house. Um, there was a, a church graveyard that backed onto this guy's property, so we'd already stashed our uniforms and weapons there. Um, the night we went down to, to kidnap him, uh, the guy who was doing... Uh, how are we doing for time? In yeah, we're right? good about two hours right now. We'll, 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 we're going to finish with the German story, so just keep going with the yeah. German story, yeah. So um, so what happened there was um, the guy who was doing surveillance for us, he couldn't get a phone signal where he was, so he had to leave his post. He had to come about half a mile away to phone us to say, it's on, they're all in there, and they're all coked up, um, so come in, you know. But what he, what he didn't see in the time he left... The guy's ex-wife turned up with his kids, mm. dropped the kids off because they were about to go to Monte Carlo. Um, and so we've gone into the house. Um, and as we've gone in through the front door, I can see little kids' suitcases. I can hear some kids. Mm. So we've I've just went like that and we've backed out. We went back several weeks later. And, uh, and he was there at that point. So we managed to hold the guy hostage. And, he, and where it got comical is we're now holding his girlfriend hostage, we're now holding his two mates hostage. While all of this is going on, we're dressed as coppers and I've got a police badge around me. Um, the front gate buzzes and I can see on CCTV there's a like a decorator's van at the front door. And he's like, oh, we've got the decorators coming in today because we're leaving. And so I've had to go out. I've had to take the earpiece out um, because I can't, cause my mates are chattering and I can't hear what the decorator's saying. And I'm pretending to be a copper, and I'm saying, you can't work today, sir. I'm just going to do a PNC check on your car number plate, and I'm pretending I'm doing that. And I say, okay, on your way. Um, but while that's happening, the two cleaning ladies have climbed over the, the back mm. fence because we've locked that, and they're now in, um, the, in the hallway, and they're talking to my two mates who are pretending to be coppers, telling them, sorry, ladies, we've got a police operation going on here today. But we had had stockings underneath the, the police hat, right? Mm. So as I'm coming back in now, I've pulled the stocking down, I've got the gun and I've barged in, and these, these women are like, oh, what's going on here? So it came on top. So so they're now hostages. We've got hostages all over the place. Oh, God. Um, so in the end, what we did is we just emptied his safe, made him transfer money through his computer to the German I gave the clean ladies a bung each. They got about 10 grand each. So they were happy. Um, and uh, and we got out of there. Nothing further came of it. It was never reported. I can talk about it today because it was never reported as a crime. But, but, then, but then you have a situation where you have to take some guys out to the woods. Well, we two two more of those other guys had now been kidnapped. And um, they also owed a lot of money. Um, that was quite intense because those guys thought they were going to die so we kidnapped them in broad daylight at their factory unit uh, we've taken them to the German in some factory don't uh, one of them crap himself as well five hour journey yeah uh, yeah unfortunately it was stinking in the back of the van um, I always say to people it's a smell that I'd, I'd never 
I want to smell again, the smell of fear and urine and feces together. It's a horrible smell. Um, but one of them had crapped himself. These were just like regular Joes. They'd gotten over their heads. And, you know, now they've got these guys that hold them off. They're, they're cable tied in the back of a van. They've got pillowcases over their head. Um, they've been taken to the German. Information's been extracted from them. And the Germans said, take them away and, and bury them. So we've, we took them to a field. If the information they've given turns out not to be accurate, he wanted them dead. So they were taken to a field with, with guns over them and um, and it was going to boil down to me whether or not that was going to happen or not. Um, and again, I was a different character in those days. Fortunately for them, the call came through, the information they'd given was correct and we let them go. But my life was really spiralling out of, out of control and uh, eventually police caught up with me and I was thrown into prison for, for five years. And it was there that my life completely changed in the other direction, you know. And you've got a ton of prison stories. But what we're going to do is, I've sat here absolutely mesmerised, John. You've done an absolutely brilliant job. Um, all these stories are expanded on in this book. And if people want to get your book, it's available worldwide on Amazon and they can get it in the bookshops in this country as well. Yeah, um, I don't know where it's stocked, but then they can go in and order it. But yeah, it's on Amazon. And I think in the comments... Places. People are going to be like, you got to get John back on, man. These stories are just absolutely mind-blowing. Um, but before we absolutely conclude, if you just want to say a little bit about where you are at in life now and what you're about to go do, that, that would be great to balance all this other stuff out. Yeah. Well, you know, I talked to you about a change, and, 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 and a change, uh, my life is very, very different today. So um, there I am now serving five years in a Scottish prison, Proceeds of Crime Act of confiscated all my money, home, I get divorced. And I'm kind of reevaluating my life. And uh, I get pestered in this prison by a Nigerian prisoner to go to a, a Bible study, of all things. And I was an atheist. I didn't believe in God or anything like that. But after four months of being pestered, I agree to go because he tells me that there's cakes and coffees and biscuits available in this Bible study, right? So I think, great. Because I knew one thing about Christians. When they pray, they close their eyes, right? And they had this little table with cake, coffee, and biscuits. And I'm thinking, <laughs> when they get in their little holy huddles, <laughs> I'm going to fill my pockets, right? Um, but before I could steal anything, this pastor guy moved us to the other side of the room. And then these guys, they start singing these Christian songs. And I'm thinking, I just don't want to be here, you know? I mean, life is multiple life is bank robbers, drug dealers, this violent idiot. And they handed me this cheap song sheet with these uh, Christian lyrics on it. And... I'm not ashamed to tell you that in that moment when I look at these hardened criminals and I was reading the lyrics, I knew I was going to cry. Mm. Like, I hadn't cried since I was a little kid. You know, my dad really abandoned us in a bad way and, mm. and we ended up, I ended up being raised on the worst housing state in Europe, just outside Glasgow, as a result. But um, I hadn't cried in years, but I didn't want them to see me crying, so I, I hid my face behind the song sheet. I cried, and the following week I went to see that pastor and I said, what is all that about? He shared with me a message that changed my life. And in simple terms, without using too much Christianese language, he used language that I was familiar with. He talked about being a judge and a legal system in punishment. The way he shared it with me, Sean, he was like, have you ever thought about God? And I said, not really. I've always thought maybe there's something bigger. I wasn't one for thinking we all just came from monkeys or I saw too much order. I knew when there's a painter, when you see a painting, there's a painter. You see a building, there's an architect. 
for me, I just saw too much order in life for it to be anything. But I didn't, I didn't put it with a God thing, right? But uh, the way he explained it to me, he said, John, you, you, you committed a crime. You went to court. You stood before a judge. The judge found you guilty, and you were sent to prison. I said, yeah, obviously. He said, well, look, as Christians, we believe that one day you're going to stand before God. You might have heard the term Judgment Day. I was like, yeah, it's a good movie, Judgment Day, isn't it? Terminate. He said, no, come on, be serious. I said, yeah. He said, well, one day you're going to stand before God on Judgment Day, and on that day, you think you'll be guilty or innocent. I said, I don't know, maybe God could see that, you know, I love my missus. I've done good things. You know, when I was on bail, I won all these awards from the police and uh, the fire department. I saved all these people from a burning building, and it was all over the newspaper. I'm, a, I'm like a hero, you know, because God, God can see that as well, right? And he said, did that work for you in court then? Like when, when you were getting done for kidnapping extortion and you said to the judge, but I've done some good things too. The judge go, all right, I'll just let you off. It don't work that way. You can't bribe the judge with your good works in the same way you can't bribe God with your good works. He said, but imagine when you were in court, right? You had a, a massive fine to pay or, or 10 years in jail, but you didn't have any money to pay your fine. But somebody else stands up in court and says, I'll pay his fine. They write a check, they pay you fine. The judge can legally let you go free because the fine's been paid, right? I said, yeah. He says, okay, so you've heard about Jesus dying on the cross. I said, yeah, of course, everyone's heard of that. Whether you believe it or not, it's up to you. He said, well, we believe that God sent Christ into the world. He lived a perfect life without sin. And when he went to the cross, it's like he wrote a check for your life. He took the punishment that you deserve for breaking God's laws. Um, and he wrote a check for your life. After three days, the check cleared. Christ rose from the dead. Everyone's familiar with that story. And he paid the price. But you've got to accept that free gift. And are you aware, are you aware of the legal implications in the heavenly realms? I was like, what do, you, what, what do you mean? He said, legally, God can dismiss your case because Jesus has paid your fine. Now, I'd never heard it put in that way before, like simple, proper, simple terms. He says, and the Bible says there's two things you can do, repent and surrender your life to Christ. If you do that, you'll, you'll, you'll have heard that term born again. And of course, I, was, I ridiculed that. Oh, yeah, the happy, clappy lot. He says, no, no, you get a new heart with new desires. You become like a new creation. I didn't really believe it at the time, but I listened, and it made me think, and I spent the next week really thinking about this whole God thing and whether it's real and whether it's not and standing before God. Um, the long and short of it is about a week later, I prayed for the first time in my life. I became a Christian in that prison, and my life really did change, mate. It really did. Like, thoughts of crime began to go. I began to have more empathy for people that I hated, that I had no time for. It changed. I was released from prison in 2007. Um, in 2008, I went on to what they call the mission field, and I began to get invited to some of the hardest prisons on the planet to share my story. It was full-time voluntary. So I wasn't entitled to dole. I wasn't entitled to government help because I wasn't making myself available for work, and it wasn't paid. For the last 12 years, I've not had a job or an income. Um, I've relied on people making a donation, wow. people inviting me, paying for flights, that kind of thing, you know. Mm. So no job, no income for 12 years. Yeah, I have a book. You've got a book too, Sean. People don't make much from books. Ah, yeah. You took the words right out of my mouth, as, as Meatloaf said, right? So um, you don't make much money from books. So it's not an income stream, but it, what it does is give me an opportunity to get invited to places. So... For the last 12 years, I've been invited to some of the toughest prisons on the planet, uh, prisons in Maori prisons in Manawatu in New Zealand, all the way to prisons in Guatemala. Uh, I've been into some of the most notorious prisons. You might have seen the Ross Kemp program where he 
went into Polesmore Prison. You spoke there. I spoke to three thousand men in there. I've spoken there several times. You told me earlier on yeah. that you went you went in there. Um, there's a thing with the numbers gang, whereby they take women, but they're actually men. But they don't think it's. They they call them a wifey. So a wifey. Uh, the most notorious numbers gangs in Polesmore are the twenty sixes. Then you have the twenty sevens and the twenty twenty eights. Uh, what will happen if you're not in a gang is you'll be forced into a gang um, and they will take a wifey. So they'll make a, a man, they'll subject him to, to doing the cleaning, the washing and the cooking. They'll also force him to have sex. Uh, they don't consider that a homosexual act because they see him as a woman. And um, a lot of them, uh, I'll send you some of the photographs from, from that day, but you see a lot of the, the guys hanging out the cell windows. They have their front teeth here missing. They're all missing and the guy who was our guide, he was a former prisoner there, and he also had his teeth missing. And I said, you know, why do all these guys have their teeth missing? And he said, well, really? So they, they can't chomp down when they're forced to give oral sex oh. to another man, you see. So it, it, it's, it's pretty, pretty awful. And you see a lot of them with their, with their front teeth smashed in or missing, so they, they knock them out so they can't, they can't bite. Um, but I, I did confront a guy in there, and I said, so so you, you, you make another man your wife in prison? Yeah, but he's only a prison wife. I said, what do you mean a prison wife? It's only a wife in prison. Outside, I have a, a woman wife. I'm like, so are you, are you gay? Are you homosexual? No. So they wouldn't accept the fact that they're committing a homosexual act. They just see it as it's a woman, and they subject them to that. Um, yeah, so it's it's a mean place, Polesmore Prison. That's called gay for the stay um, in America. Oh, well, I've never heard of that expression before, but yeah, they, they do that. So it uh, never appealed to me very much, but uh, it seems to appeal to them. But it's a, it's a, it's a harsh, harsh prison. And you're about to go back out there. Uh, I'm leaving uh, in a few days, actually. Um, I'm heading not to Cape Town this time or Joburg. I've spoken in, in prisons in Johannesburg as well to, again, about two and a half, three thousand men they brought out into the football field. Um, I've been into prisons where I guess one of the worst ones was in Romania, right? So we got escorted to this classroom to speak to these Romanian prisoners. We got escorted by what looked like a SWAT team. Twelve um, prison officers dressed like SWAT in full riot gear. With ba- They had to hide their faces in case they get recognised on the out. They march us in there with weapons and they march us in there to this part of the prison they open the classroom door, they put us in there, and they say, we'll be back for you in two hours. And they leave. <laughs> so it's quite interesting. Uh, and, and these guys uh, and, and some of the conditions that they're living in are, are just awful, like awful, awful conditions. I've been in prisons in India that you wouldn't put your worst enemy in. In Guatemala, where the guards won't even go into the prisons. Um, but, you know, I've got to say, I know it sounds a bit weird, but prisons my favorite place to go these days because it was in prison where I felt that I was finally set free. And so for me, if I really believe, I don't want to be a hypocrite. If I believe that Christianity is true, if I believe that I was set free, my life changed so much, then I think I'd be a bit of a hypocrite if I didn't then take that message back to try and pass it on to others. I don't want to force religion down people's throat. Just share in a normal way and say, think about these things because my life was changed from night to day um, by this message if you want to find out more go see a church i think it's really moving that you went from this scary lifestyle i mean people watching this good grief out of all the people i've interviewed they're probably thinking 
back in the day, they would not want to have been a target of you and your team. That's one of the scariest things that could possibly ever happen to someone from just all the people I've interviewed and speaking to you today. Let's go from there to um, going all over the world to the most depraved, run-down prisons to inspire people to get on the right path. Man, that is that is so moving to me. And the fact that you're not even getting paid to do it, you're relying on people just, you know, paying for your travel expenses and, and, and sending you donations. Do you have a page that we can put below this video so people can donate to you? Yeah, there's, uh, well, I guess you, you can, you know, I'm not here to look for donations. If if someone feels moved and they want to make a donation, yeah. look, I, I'll snatch your hand off. I, I really need it. You know, I'm going to South Africa in a few days. The church that invited us, we're not in a position to pay. I've raised the money through mm. different friends that have donated and given to that. Um, the church we're going to pay, but they also run an orphanage, right? And um, and what what will happen is I'll get invited to places and they might raise a collection and they'll give me something. So I, I'll have a small gift to come back with. In in a in a Western country or a wealthy country, in other places in Africa and and in India. That's just not going to happen. So we'll raise all of the funds. But usually, you know, like in this country, I get invited somewhere. They'll make a donation. It covers my expenses. And maybe I get 100 quid as well, you know, which is great because that will help me get to the next place. Um, I speak in ones with prison on a regular basis. They ask me for 50 copies of my book. You know, you don't get your books for free. You know, my books cost me four quid each from my publisher. That's 200 quid. So I take them 50 copies of the book and then I get an email from the pastor saying, the chaplain there, can you bring some more? Your books are proving so popular, the prisoners are selling them on the black market <laughs> in the prison, right? But I've got to raise the funds. So, But here, but then I can put out an appeal and say, can anyone help me? Or if I, I'm at a speaking engagement, I'll say, look, if you buy the book for a tenner, it costs me four quid. If you buy it for a tenner, I can give two away in, to a prison. So people will go, oh, well, I'll buy two copies. So that helps me. Uh, to do that but so do you have a web page like yeah. a website that people can donate to because i want to make a donation myself well the, um you can find out details where you can do that okay so i have two websites the one is for the book as you know the book is called if a wicked man um and the website is if a wicked man.com just one word if a wicked man.com and there'll be some book uh, information there and one of the tabs it will say ministry so they can click on ministry and then it will take you to the ministry web website. So the ministry side of things, in other words, the religious side of things, is called escapeministries.co.uk. So it's one word, www.escapeministries.co.uk. All the links will be in the description box below this video. Um, so have a look at them. You'll, you'll see more of what I do, more of the story. Um, you'll see some videos and stuff like that. I'll try and put footage up there. So it's on the ministry um, page. You can actually make a financial donation. Yeah, there's there's links to the bank account and people can, can put in or they can say, I want to help with a specific mission you've got coming up so that's what people did with the south africa one because just, just paypal and stuff like that on it yeah there's okay mm, maybe not paypal they can pay uh anyway they can work it out on there okay i don't ask for money i yeah. when, when i go and speak at places i don't ask them for money yeah uh, if they want to give it to me i'll take it yeah but um people say to me how much do you charge for a speaking engagement i say i don't so if you want to give something that will help people watching this how can they contact you What's well, your preferred method? Well, off off the website. So they can email me if they want. So they can email me at john at ifawickedman.com or they can email me at john at escapeministries.co.uk. I'll, I'll put those in the description box uh, as well. The links are on the website. 
Um, and, uh, you know, we're going to give a copy away, aren't we, of, of the book? Yeah, whoever gets the wrong. most comments, um, likes on a comment, we'll get one copy of this. And um, we'll wait for, you know, almost a month before that uh, we see how, how many uh, likes are on that comment. Yeah. And then we'll send that book so out. So you guys hear that? That's a like and a comment. It's not just a like. <laughs> not just a like. Okay? Most likes on the We comment. like likes, but... Most liked comment. No likey. No likey likeies, okay? <laughs> no likes and a comment, okay? So if, whoever gets the most, we'll be happy to send you. I've already signed it um, for you anyway, so I hope you get it, and I hope it's you, and I hope you read it. And if you'd like to see John back on the podcast, please put that in the comments as well. I mean, that two hours just went like that to me. I was mesmerized, and I've got so many more questions to ask, and there's just so many more stories that John's not talked about. So please put that in the comments uh, below what you felt about today's podcast. If you've not subscribed to the channel, we would appreciate you subscribing. Subscription logo, bottom right-hand corner. If you want to donate to the channel so we can produce these podcasts in professional studios, the links are down there for PayPal, Patreon, just giving, subscribe star. And a huge thank you to, you know, getting us up to almost 400,000 subscribers right now. Really appreciate all your love and support out there. And man, wow. Honestly, that was brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. You knock yeah, my glasses fantastic. off now. No, <laughs> glasses off. <laughs> Don't send the team for me. No, 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 I won't. Mate. Yeah. No, thank you. Cheers. Thanks for watching. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks to her GigaClear full-fiber broadband, Emma has been effortlessly floating around her satellite office at home. Now her boss, Kevin, sucks the atmosphere from the room while addressing the team. Luckily, GigaClear rockets up to 15 times faster than the UK average, so Emma can stream a box set and look for a new job at the same time. Switch now and find your digital happiness. From just £17 a month, your GigaClear for takeoff. Average speeds up to 830 megabits per second. T's and C's apply.